What's up, everybody? Thank you all for checking us out this week here on Kicking Out at Two over at SoundCloud.com. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and we got an exciting show planned for you as we're going to be bringing back the second installment in our Trading Places series as we cover WWF Breakdown in your house, 1998, from September the 26th. Justin, my offensive coordinator, my little brother, he's going to be joining me. He's going to help me navigate the waters on this underwhelming and underappreciated event. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the Trading Places concept, allow me to educate you and school you, if you will, on what we do. Uh, We take an event, and an event that really doesn't get talked about as much. Like I said, breakdown is very underwhelming and underappreciated. And we flip the the switch. We we change the results of each and every match, and we try to map out where those particular characters and what direction those storylines could have had in a realistic fashion without resembling fantasy booking because pro wrestling podcasts – uh, is just littered with fantasy bookers, and I would like to be part of a movement uh, that that results in no fantasy booking in pro wrestling podcasts because it's just taken over and it's become obnoxious. And don't get me wrong, I've fantasy booked myself. I've done it on other podcasts, um, but I'm just trying to do away with that because I feel like fantasy booking really um, you know, upsets and disappoints a lot of fans that don't get the results that they want because they basically mapped out a storyline or a character's direction in their head and then the results went the other way and it was a direction that they didn't envision. So it, it sours the fan on the experience and, you know, I, I, I just want to be a fan sometimes. So I think that's why I really have a dislike for fantasy booking and in some ways regret fantasy booking at times when I do it with other wrestling fans. So with that being said, uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of Breakdown in Your House 1998, allow me to uh, remind you all that we are on social media, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. If you have not already, hit the like button. Be a part of all the interactive fun and discussions that we have over there. If you have hit the like button, tell a friend to join us. They will be officially a member of the Kicking Out at Two crew. And that membership, that applies over on Twitter. And if they have a Twitter handle and they want to follow us and they want to talk pro wrestling, then give us a follow. Our handle is at Kicking Out 2. That's K I C K N O U T and the number 2. The following is not as strong on Twitter as it is on Facebook. So help a brother out. Help me make it happen. Help me put Twitter up there on the same level as Facebook when it comes to the following of Kicking Out at 2. All right. Got the social media plugs out of the way. Now let's get into uh, why we're here. Breakdown in Your House, 1998, and we're approaching the 20th anniversary this week of that event. Like I said, an event that really doesn't get talked about enough, an event, in my opinion, that kind of set the table for um, the direction that you know a lot of storylines and the main storylines on WWF television were heading into the tail end of 1998 and going into 1999 as we were heading into WrestleMania season at that time. And so uh, Justin and I thought it would be apropos on this date that we trade places when it comes to breakdown in your house 1998 but we're not the only ones seems like my inspiration conrad thompson who hosts a number of podcasts but one in particular something to wrestle with bruce pritchard they're also covering that show this week on their podcast so for all you wrestling podcast listeners out there that can't get enough of wrestling podcasts for those of you that um, appreciate this event, Breakdown in Your House 1998, then you're in for a treat. You get the best of both worlds. You can listen to us here on Wednesday on Kicking Out at 2, and you can hear a fan's perspective because we are not experts. 
And then Friday, you can download Bruce Pritchard's podcast and you can listen to the expert, the guy that was there to help construct the storylines and map things out for WWF television in the fall of 1998. So uh, definitely a treat for all you guys. And with that being said, let's get into it this week. Ladies and gentlemen, the return of our Trading Places series here on Kicking Out at Two this month. Last month, Justin and I sat down and we covered SummerSlam 1997 and the what ifs. This month, we decided to uh, go with a, a little bit of a different approach and cover an event that really doesn't get talked about much at all within uh, you know wrestling history and particularly WWE history, and that's Breakdown In Your House 1998. Uh, headlining that show was Stone Cold Steve Austin defending the WWE Championship against both Kane and The Undertaker in a triple threat match, and uh, the rest of the card was kind of thrown together but uh, at the last minute, but we're going to uh, sit down and uh, break down this card and uh, the what-ifs and the, the paths that some of these individuals could have taken had the roles been reversed. So uh, with that being said, let me introduce you to my co-host, the offensive coordinator here on Kicking Out It 2, Mr. Justin Rosenbluth. Hello. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Um, you know, this is a, a card that I think in history was somewhat of a launching pad for what the uh, the Federation was trying to set up for, for many months ahead and, like you said, often gets forgotten. But, you know, a good card, I think, to revisit, you know, to ponder what if, because, like I said, directions were laid down and foundations for big stuff to happen that took the WWF into new uh, new places. And it kind of... This is kind of an important show in that regard. This card is uh, rather interesting because there's a you know you, you said laid the groundwork down and uh, there's a lot of individuals on this card that uh, big things uh, happened following this event not because of this event but for a lot of these individuals and we saw early flashes of uh, what the future was going to hold for WWE at this time individuals like Edge, um, uh, D'Lo Brown. Uh, Obviously, uh, Mankind in the Rock, Val Venus, uh, you know, names like that. Guys that had a, a bigger impact in the Attitude Era and moving forward. Uh, and some of the stuff on this card, uh, there's a lot left to be desired. I'll be perfectly honest with you. But at the same time, um, this is a surprisingly this was a surprisingly good show. Going back and watching it earlier this week to do my research. Uh, let's kick things off with the opening match on this card um and i'm not including the sunday night heat matches because uh, there isn't any footage on the wwe network for that or is there i'm not sure is there a... might be if there's a, if there's episodes of heat on there now maybe there yeah there spot. could be yeah you you might be right actually i apologize i i, I stand corrected uh but the I, the opening I, that there's no there's no no I, no, no. I don't know any for that for sure but no I the op- yes no that's that's no that's quite all right the opening match on the main card was owen hart representing the nation still against Edge. Now, mind you, this event took place in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, both fellow Canucks. Um, Owen Hart, as history would would, uh, show, defeated Edge with a roll-up as a debuting Christian was outside distracting Edge. Uh, The announcers didn't know him by name at the time, so they didn't refer to him, but this match was a a really good opening contest. And uh, going back and watching it earlier this week, the audience was really on Owen Hart. Owen Hart was, you know, beloved in all of Canada, but you got a lot of nugget chance towards him. He got a, a semi-mixed pop, I, I would say, coming out. Uh, but I was kind of surprised at the the 
the heat he was able to draw, um, even in Canada, knowing you know the history with the Hart family in Canada. Um, you, you know, I think that's a testament to Owen Hart, you know, and the skill that he had. You know, if you think about it, not too long ago, about even, probably a year and a half prior, you know, he might have been the most hated man in Canada, you know, due to his his legendary rivalry with his brother Brett, you yep. know, Canadian hero, if you will. So, um, you know, there's that backstory, that history there you could dig up that would probably help, you know, create that heat and kind of foster that, you know, rekindle that dynamic with the fans. But again, that's how good Owen Hart was. You know, he was able to to take the the negatives of the circumstances the year prior with Montreal and being the, the sole survivor, the, the last heart, if you will, in the WWF and, and, and make that work for him in a way that, you know, made him an interesting character again because he could have, he could have gone down a bad path as far as, um, you know, creatively speaking, what could have been, you know? Well, I'll be honest with you. I was not a big proponent of Owen Hart in the Nation of Domination. If you want to talk creatively down a bad road, I didn't think that was, uh, you know, the the best choice for him. But in hindsight, being 2020, looking back on it, he was in a war with D-Generation X, and he had nobody, and he kind of needed some people to, to, to watch his back, even if, you know, Owen Hart's... Um, the characters' morals didn't match the the uh, mission statement of the nation. They had one common goal in mind, and that was to 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 rid the WWF of Degeneration X. Um, good opening contest here, I will say. I thought it was very fun, back and forth, fast paced match, and uh, you know both guys definitely for working together for the first time on that scale uh, looked like they. Uh, Certainly uh, knew what they were doing in the ring with each other. But like I said, history showed that Owen Hart defeated Edge with a roll-up. The same roll-up he used, by the way, uh, against his brother Brett uh, from WrestleMania 10. But how about you start this one off? Um, what if the roles were reversed? What if Edge defeated Owen Hart in this match? What path would have Edge taken? Now, mind you, he just debuted in the WWF in June of that year. And he was kind of, I wouldn't say floundering, but they were still trying to figure out what to do with him. So uh, where would Edge have gone had he had been victorious over Owen Hart? Um, well, first I'll say I think this is one of those matches just on paper when you say it like that. And, and being an opening contest in the Attitude Era, you know, those are two those are two workhorses. Those are two Hall of Famers. Yep. You know, whether they're in there or not, those are, those are, those are two legendary guys who know how to work and know how to lay their stuff in and, and have a great entertaining contest. So it's kind of cool and almost a what could have been. You know, you say what could have been if, if Edge had had the victory. What could have been if there was more to Owen and, and, and Edge at another level where Edge is a more established character, um, you know. So, you know, I think Edge winning here I think could have would have probably had a, a, a positive effect for Edge. I don't think it would have hurt Owen Hart too much. Um, I think it could have, as it I think did very closely afterwards. I think it um, it was to establish the you know the association with Christian and the you know the brood, if you will. Yeah. Which you know in this in this time you know the WWF was the land of you know gang warfare. Warfare. Yep. You know that would have been another you know logical you know matchup, if you will, the brood in the nation, and I think. A guy like Owen Hart added that credibility to to make them formidable outside of Farouk and The Rock. So I think it would have just brought the brood to another level to, you know, pu- you know, present more enticing matchups. 
that's that, and I think it would have really made people. It would have turned heads having Edge, you know, pull out that victory probably much earlier than it already would have eventually. Well, what's interesting about this scenario is that you know, and like a lot of these matches on this card, as we will go down the list later on, is that. These matches were kind of thrown together. This was like a one-match show that was really promoted with, you know, Austin and Undertaker um, and Kane in the triple threat match. And a lot of these matches were thrown together at the last minute. There was no uh, indication on television in weeks prior that Edge and Owen Hart were going to be hooking it up and going at it. As a matter of fact, Owen was, I think, just kind of slowly stepping away from the nation, if I'm not mistaken, at this point in time. He was doing stuff with... uh, with uh, Dan Severn, and like I said, Edge wasn't floundering, but they were still trying to figure out where he fit, and the the, the Christian factor, um, for me, I think, uh, plays a big part in this scenario, in this role reversal, if you will, this trading places, uh, because Christian, you know, it, it appeared to me as a kid watching that, and we'll touch upon this later in the, in, in the Gangrel match with D'Lo Brown later on in the card, but Christian and Edge, we were still trying to figure out their association. We didn't even know who Christian was. We didn't even know his name. That's true. At that one time. So his appearance um, in the at the, end, the closing moments of this match to distract Edge, um, I felt like creatively, I wouldn't say it was counterproductive, but it kind of contradicted the way that they were depicting the story. It felt like, you know... And people could disagree, you know, whatever the case may be, but I felt like if Christian's character is going to distract Edge and cost him the victory, only for later on to find out that that's his brother and they are a part of this, they'll eventually join up and be a part of this group, the Brood. I didn't under, I didn't find the logic in, in Christian distracting him to cost him the victory. Now, we know that eventually later they all became the Brood with Gangrel and... Uh, but that was just kind of like very, I don't know. There, were, I felt like there was something there in the the, the 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 mystery behind the association, and they didn't drag it out a little longer, you know, between right. Edge and Christian. It just kind of got. It was just like he showed up, he he cost Edge the match, and then a few weeks later, maybe even a month later, I forget how long it was. All of a sudden, you know, oh, we're brothers, and we're with Gangrel, and now we're the Brood, like. Just, yeah, I feel like a victory would have could have been could have expedited that process. Like, yeah, exactly. That's the point I'm, I was getting I'm at. He, I'm here to recruit my brother to this, you know, this group of people. You know, again, an underrated, you know, stable that you know it's kind of got that mythical like cult like following today. Yep. You know, as far as its place in history. Yeah. Um, you know, history treats the brood a lot kinder than their existence. Or maybe um, just their theme music yeah, and the well, entrance for, itself. For, oh my yeah. god! Yeah, it's it's legendary. <laughs> Um, but I think, yeah, you could have gone that route with 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 Edge getting the victory and 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 a, and a debuting, you know, Christian or you know, mystery associate mm-hmm. that is at the time, essentially beginning that recruitment process. But at the same time, I think maybe they were skittish of giving Edge a victory so early in his career without really kind of establishing that credibility. He could then get victories later. With the, the the brood behind him, if you will, um, but then again, maybe they maybe they saw it backfire. An Owen Hart victory backfired, and that's when they maybe maybe plan, plans change. Maybe they decided, you know what, let's 
let's let's get him in the group. Let's not have him fighting the group. Let's get yeah. him in the group. Maybe that was the plan. But at the same t- at the same time, if you, know, you you make mention, you know that. that Maybe they were skittish giving Edge that victory. They put him in a pretty high-profile spot a month prior as Sable's mystery partner against Mark Merrow and Jacqueline at SummerSlam. I mean, that's like that was a for me as a kid that was a pretty important match on the card because of the mystery partner I, I element. Yeah, no, I would agree, and I think I think that's you know Edge's look even from day one. You could tell that he was destined for big things. and yep. he was going to be a big part of the company's future. Oh, yeah. as he proved to be. So, you know, I think they looked at it like, great, we, we have this, you know, fresh, you know, baby-face-looking guy that we can do great things with. And I think maybe they wanted to give him all those opportunities and it just wasn't quite hitting on a smooth trajectory like they would have thought. And that's where they decided, okay, let's give Owen the win and let Edge chase the, this, this brood, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, no pun intended. Uh, and then they realized, you know what? Why bother? Throw him in there. How far is he going to go as a babyface in the Attitude Era at, at that stage on that level of the card? He's got a lot of people, you know, who will be stacked above him, naturally so. So let's just put him there, let him develop even more. And I think it seems like, again, just talking about it now in retrospect, that they that they they basically wanted to expedite and 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 strap some rockets to him, but then realized, okay. The ceiling isn't that high for him right now. Yeah. So let's let's cool his jets a little bit and let him, you know, keep Develop. developing under, yeah. under that group with 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 a, a great, an immensely talented Gangrel. So I think again, it seems like more of a change of plans on the go. Yep. And it's hard to argue with how it worked, but you know, I think they could have kept it going, and you know, you know, an edge victory could have just brought them back to where they ended up going, anyways. Yeah. I mean, I I think I, I think the edge victory in hindsight um would have just expedited that process faster as we move on to uh another thrown together match on this card second match with a, a tad bit of history behind it the team of too much uh too sexy brian christopher the late brian christopher and scott too hot taylor <laughs> as they tagged up against scorpio and al snow uh, Al Snow was reinstated into the WWF, defeating Sergeant Slaughter in a boot camp match uh, the Monday Night Raw prior. Uh, the reason why he was reinstated is because back at the King of the Ring uh, in June of 98, uh, he and Head lost a tag team match to Taylor and Christopher with Jerry Lawler as the guest referee. So I guess this was kind of the, the blow-off match here. And uh, history told us that Al Snow and Scorpio defeated too much with the snowplow. Um, fun but sloppy at times with this match. Um, I mean, we, this isn't really something we can sink our teeth into too much when it comes to this match. But, you know, what if too much got the victory over Snow and Scorpio? Well, I think we see an, uh, uh, a theme just off the second match coming off the first one of the experienced veteran hand bringing along future talent. And mm-hmm. that, you know, the future talent in this scenario was Scott Taylor and Brian Christopher. Yep. You know, immensely talented Al Snow, immensely talented, you know, Scorpio. You know, those guys, their job was to make those guys look good. Um, and I think, I don't, I'm sure Too Cool wasn't uh, 
on the radar yet, but I, you still have to give props to Vince Russo for giving guys something to do. Yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. And he's he, them being in that pay-per-view match and them just being a tag team was the, the start of that. And I think the two cool stuff was giving them a character that people could get behind. So, again, I, I feel like this is just another match of, all right, let's let's take our veterans, let's take our good hands, and let these let's take these young kids to school. Yep. And show them how it's done, and you know, and how I had mentioned earlier in in, in our uh, guilty pleasures match, you know, for me the light heavyweights were a guilty pleasure of mine in the WWF at that time. That's another way to get them over, you know, especially in a tag team scenario where they're a little bit unique compared to the rest of that division. Yep. And you know, I I think he would have the ceiling. I think of would have been difficult for them to crack in that regard too. That's I think why they ended up getting those two cool characters and that gimmick because. They had a lot above them that was going to keep them where they were because of just the talent that was on that roster at the time. Yeah. So a victory, it, a victory for them wouldn't have done them much because the roster was so packed and crowded and stacked, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think they would have you would have, they would have shot their load on a, on, a, on a group of guys and potentially feared losing the audience support for them if. They get this big win, they start riding high, and then, yep, they hit that ceiling, and then guess what? Back down the ladder they go, and then you, lo- then you could lose them. You know? and, and maybe that was the reason why Too Cool became a thing. Because you know, you hit that ceiling and you go, all these wins, all these wins, and then it's, ah, we really don't have much for you beyond this, so let's give you these characters. And Too Cool, much like The Brood, kind of you know, have a, a, a place in people's hearts in wrestling history. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something. Uh, when I was watching this match, and I was watching Christopher and Taylor kind of interact with each other, they were very, um, you know, obnoxious in their behavior. Um, you know, in their entrances, and you know, the the, the pre match rituals and things like that. And I don't know why, but and maybe it's just a, a Southern thing. But to me, when I looked at them, I thought like, how good would they have been with a Jim Cornette? as like their manager during that time frame you know i i was trying to think like how could they because Cornette at that time uh he had been not reduced but i'd say limited to a backstage role he at one point had the his new midnight express with um bob holly and bart gunn bombastic bob and bodacious bart and that didn't seem to really uh you know resonate with the the attitude era audience of the wwf at the time but what could have been with if a too cool victory or too much i should say because they weren't too cool at this point uh what would that have done and then add jim Cornette to that mix i think that's a very interesting idea to ponder i think again i think those guys were immensely talented and probably could get over the the more um workhorse idea of a traditional southern tag team more so than bob and bart mm-hmm. as good as those guys were at least yep. maybe bob holly but i think you have a fresh people you know they were trying shit that you could never try again oh yeah never duplicate again in the attitude yeah. they're just throwing throwing shit on the wall for the sake of doing it yep because they were just so hot and some things worked and really some things didn't oh yeah um so they were just fresh faces you know, not just in that light heavyweight division that I, you know, look back on with fondness, but you know, just in general, they were they were just new people in the game. You know what I mean? This was the attitude era. This whole year was the on was the rolling out of this new WWF 
of this new cast of characters, this youth movement. Yep. Um, and those guys could have been a very big part of it, even more so. I mean, they were a big part of it later on, obviously. But in this incarnation of their group with a guy like Jim Cornette, man, they they could have broken through a ceiling, I feel like. Now that you mention it, that's a very interesting concept, a very interesting scenario to ponder. And what do you think of Al Snow? Because I remember at 14 years old, 15 years old, whatever I was at the age at that time in 1998, I'm 35, so yeah, I was 15 years old at the time. Um, I remember the following, the cult-like following Al Snow had from that ECW audience with the head character, the head gimmick going into WWF. And I felt like because it was so strong that at that time, Al Snow was destined for more. I didn't, I felt almost like, yeah, he had to get, he had to start his way up, I guess, or restart his way up into the WWF by, with these matches with like tagging with Scorpio and things like that. But I, I felt like. I'm not saying Al Snow would have been the WWF champion or even <laughs> no, competed yeah, yeah, for the WWF championship, but I feel like Al Snow, because he had that that cult like following and that ECW audience behind him in the WWF's Attitude Era, that like he could have been a bigger deal and more important than his character was portrayed. Um, he could have been, at least for me, at that time at 15 years old, I thought like. Well, why aren't they doing more with Al Snow against Vince McMahon? Because they had, you know, depicted that narrative that it was Vince McMahon and the machine, the corporate, the corporate machine of of the World Wrestling Federation that was preventing him from succeeding. So why didn't they elaborate on that more? I'm, I'm, I'm. Let me get an outsider's perspective here. Uh, I think, I think first off the 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 restart, if you will, because you know, you know, in my young life. Al Snow was Leaf Cassidy. That's right. You know, the... The, the, the new, new rocker. Yeah, the new rocker with Marty Jannetty. And, you know, his his reintroduction to that audience with that ECW following and that ECW gimmick, to me, was indicative of just, this is what's going to get him skin in the game. You know, this is what's going to bring him to the table. You know, are, you often hear now, like, oh, when they release a guy, they have we have nothing for you. And it sounds like they didn't have anything for Al Snow but that. Whether Al Snow pitched it himself or maybe Paul Heyman had a hand in that or what have you, mm-hmm. that's what was – that. screw it. Let's use it. Let's use the job squad. Let's use head. Let's use all of what Al Snow was able to cultivate in that world of ECW. And I think you can probably say that the relationship that the WWE had with ECW is very much part of why that all took place. And I think Vince McMahon probably looked at a guy like that and seeing whether it was him or other people, seeing the reactions he got, you know, in the bingo halls and said, you know what, that can work here. Let's, let's, you know, even if it was just for one moment, one day of let's, I want that audience buying little toy heads and just bobbing them up and down, you know, the visuals, the production value that Vince McMahon provides. I think Vince McMahon said, if I could just do that once, then I think it would have, it would make for the the an even better visual than what is you know on the TV screen on Paul Heyman's show, and I think it just adds to the variety of the show. Okay. And in that place, you know, in time, they, it's just trying new things, and I think the guy could work, so that's great. Yeah. Now he has a character. Cool. Let's do something with it. Okay. You know, and I think you say why couldn't you do more? I think it goes back to what I was saying before about other guys. 
ceiling was only so high for so many people. That roster was stacked. You go back to the 80s, and you see all the talent that was in that era of wrestling. Yeah. Why couldn't it be more done with those guys? You know, the you know even some you know the Bushwhackers are a legendary tag team, and look what they became. You know, in the WWF. Well, you know, how far could they have gone? You're going to have them compete with Demolition, the Road Warriors, the Hart Foundation, on a serious level. Yeah, you can't. But you know what? They're going to put on a good show, and that's their place. Okay. And I think that's what they looked at Al Snow as being. And you know what? He took it further than I think we can give him credit for. Yeah. You know, going leading into the stuff with the big boss man, which is probably what he's most famous for, and Pepper. The guy did some good stuff. Oh, no, don't get me yeah. wrong. I'm not saying that, like, his his run in the WWF, WWE was a flop by any means because I enjoyed the stuff with the big boss man, the Pepper. I enjoyed the stuff with Steve Blackman. Yeah, um, you head know, cheese, Head yes. Cheese, as much as I hated the name, I thought that the interaction with him and Blackman was cool. It was like a, um, it was like the, uh, the, the minor league version of the rock and sock connection. Like he was, yeah. you know, in some way, obviously Blackman didn't have the charisma and the talent of, of someone like the rock, Perfect but that same, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The odd couple dynamics. So I'm not knocking his run whatsoever. I was just kind of curious, like, you know, because he had such a strong following coming back to the WWF with that ECW audience and knowing that WWF and ECW kind of had a working relationship. I just felt like, Al Snow could have been a bigger star for for me personally, and that was fifteen year old me. Now, obviously, as you explained it and became the voice of reason for that, it's you know I I totally get that and understand that. But um, uh, you know, you you brought the toy up. I wanted to you know the the the, the I wanted to bring that up for a second here and you know uh, discuss that. Do you remember when? And we had all the action figures when we were kids. You know, a load of them. Um, and Al Snow is one of them, um, but you, you do you remember that Al Snow, the action figure, didn't come with a head, with with the head like mannequin head. I do now. Yeah. And do you remember that the big campaign in Walmart that Walmart wouldn't sell the Al Snow toy because it depicted Al Snow beheading women? That I heard. I feel like years later at the time, obviously being not even ten years old, you didn't I give a shit. I, I, yeah. I, I, this, you know, that's yeah. not, you know. I just want social to, I just, justice isn't on my brain. At yeah, no, no, no. But, I get no, I get uh, that. But yeah, I think I feel like I heard that years later, and that's just man. That, that's um, that's a world of WWF where they they looked in every way to challenge the system in many ways. You know, with all the the support groups out there that were breathing down their necks, uh, they pushed every envelope they could. And yeah, it's, it's funny that you know that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, that you know, you know, I probably you could probably see Vince McMahon sitting, you know, on the fourth floor of Titan Tower, going, you know what, I'm not, I'm not dying on the hill of Al Snow. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just yeah. you know what, he's he's great, he does all, he does good work, but you know what, you know, my, our Stone Cold Steve Austin toy sells thirty times as much more than yeah. he does, and it makes up for the fact that Al Snow doesn't have a little head accessory. Yeah, that's a good point, you know, because like, like I said, I felt like there was so much more. That they could capitalize on him with, and there was no mannequin heads. You couldn't buy mannequin heads. Like they they, mer- they, they put merchandise for everything. Roman Reigns' wrist guard is something that kids wear nowadays. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Kane's mask. You know they merchandise the shit out of everything nowadays. And I felt like as controversial as that content was in the Attitude Era, that. Why didn't and like you said they pushed the envelope with so much stuff with DX and Austin and The Rock and all that stuff that why didn't they put 
push the envelope further with a guy like Al Snow and sell those mannequin heads. I think they would have done that now, like you said. They just sell every, they sell everything and anything now, yeah. as they did then. But I feel like even then, you're you, you. I keep going back to like they have the roster, they have the guys they're running with, and that handful of guys. That's the money they're dumping into to maximize their profit. So they're you know I feel like and again I'm not you know a businessman in any stretch, but I feel like. That's probably a lot of the thought behind it. Like, well, who is out? You know, who's Al Snow to the head of merchandise in WWE? You know what I mean? Sells he sells an okay T-shirt. He's, but I mean, how much? How many Stone Cold thermoses did we sell? You know what I mean? Yeah. How many Rock El, you know, people's elbow pads did we sell? That's the stuff that yeah. matters because those are the guys that are that we're investing time and effort into. Yeah. Al Snow just wasn't being given that time. Yeah. Did he have the talent to get more? There's not an argument there in that, absolutely. But yeah. at the same time, you know, what, how much of the return are they going to see in that? I think it would be ultimately probably a diminishing return. Hey, I'm not a businessman, but I think, you know, they're, they're probably looking at the more effort we put in, are we going to be able to maximize that return on a guy that we're really not featuring to our audience as being, you know, a flagship? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on to the next match. Another match that was thrown together, but also another match within the theme that you discussed of the old vet and, you know, the the young up-and-comer kind of pairing these two guys together. Marvelous Mark Marrow with Jacqueline, the newly crowned World Wrestling Federation Women's Champion, minus the title. She did not have the title with her when she accompanied him to the ring. Went one-on-one with Draws, Darren Drozdoffer, otherwise known as Pierre. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna, All right, everyone's done the, the, yeah. the Vince McMahon Beyond the Mat impression. Yeah. I don't think we need to go any further. We know, uh, we, we know what that's all about. But Mark Marrow won with the Marvelocity, which is... The Shooting Star Press, with help from Jacqueline, as, right. Jack, as Marrow distracted the referee, and Jacqueline, uh, I believe she either like forearm draws out on the floor, or she picked him up and uh, you know threw him into the ring post, and then dragged him back in the ring. But nonetheless, Marrow got the victory. No buildup for this match, and uh, I mean another issue. I guess we really don't have too much to sink into here, but. Uh, this was the period in time we discussed it on the um, on the guilty pleasures episode concerning the brawl for all, where um, these are two individuals who were involved in the brawl for all, and I felt like big things could have been for not only Savio Vega but for Mark Marrow coming from the brawl for all, judging by his boxing background. And uh, to me personally, I felt like you know the the the. The horse was already out of the barn. Like this victory for Mark Marrow didn't really do anything for him, and I think what hurt him more than anything was his split from Sable, and the 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 her, his wife Sable, you know, achieving you know greater success on television for the WWF and being you know one of their flagships uh, for their programming, and Marrow you know being embarrassed with the power bomb and getting pinned in the middle of the ring on a Monday Night Raw. I just this didn't this didn't really do anything for me um but you know a, a draws win a darren draws off win obviously i personally feel like it would have expedited the process faster of his of his involvement with the legion of doom lod 2000 at the time because he was kind of subbing in tagging when they were doing that whole you know um hawk uh having his personal issue storyline and they were splitting up the legion of doom so i feel like a, a draws victory it wouldn't have helped too much, but it would have gotten 
us to the point faster of him teaming with you know animal and, and hawk and doing that whole deal there. yeah i think um i think maybe a mark merrill win was probably the way they felt going because like you said the steam he had been losing post sable and they you know had enough invested in Mark Merrow to want to try to keep him on a, an upward trajectory. And they probably felt, again, in like the other scenarios, this raw talent of draws could stand to lose to see what type of support he can gain from the audience. And I think, I don't think he, he was, he was heralded as like a blue chipper. I think, you know, his NFL background was talked about a lot. Yes. Um, I think that draws, getting to the LOD in many ways, the way they executed it and looking back on it was something that kind of hurt them because the LOD, everyone loved the LOD, you know, and I think they wanted to make Hawk appear as a bad guy. Yeah. You know, the jealousy of draws potentially joining this legendary group and almost in his eyes, his paranoid self replacing him. No one wants to see the LOD break up or be replaced or anything. And I think you put draws in a bad spot. I'll compare it to this. And I know Dennis isn't here. But this is this. I'll, I'll compare it to, um, you know, the Green Bay Packers. You know, when Brett Favre retired, and he wanted to come back, and they said, mm, "We've got Aaron Rodgers now. We've got the young guy here. We've yeah. got the kid. We're going with the kid." Yep. And you know, you can say that Rotor Animal was, you know, the Green Bay Packers. Not, well, we got this kid, man. He's good. We we love you, but we're going with the kid now. Yep. And there's a lot of hurt feelings that go with that. And I think, like I said. You know, I don't think draw or excuse me, Hawk was. Uh, I think he was. People sympathized with him. You know, people attach, you know, and can relate to the personal issues that he was going through, at least on camera. Why should I hate that guy? Why should I hate that guy? You know, because draws is potentially taking a good thing away from us. Is I feel yeah. like the audience's sentiment there that made it not really resonate as much. And there really wasn't a huge payoff to it. Raw draws still came out looking really crappy. Yeah, you know he was just the the replacement, and you don't replace the LOD. No, and I think that he ran into that dead end and really didn't do much after that. And I I don't know, like you said, maybe a win here would have gotten him quicker to that spot but i think it would have gotten quicker to where they ended up being i think they i I think following the lod though i think they did a decent job of having draws distance himself from that lod persona and that stigma um by the association with albert a train you know yes uh, matt bloom and and and, you know kind of doing the whole like tattoo piercing artist kind of thing is you know back in the 90s you know as a teenager you know piercings especially in places where you know you didn't expect to get a piercing done was like the in thing between noses and nipples and, and what you know, have you Prince Dick, Alberts yeah exactly dicks and vaginas you know like it was the, it was the happening thing uh, and you know what yeah and I think that also that little gimmick kind of pushed the envelope as well as a nine year old kid I didn't know what a Prince Albert was yeah. and I don't and it's not like they I think I had to tell you you probably were the one that told me <laughs> and I'm like what? Like, what? Like, and to me, like, why would somebody? There was do that, that like tongue in cheek, like, oh, his name is Prince Albert, and it's like yeah. to me, it's like, all right, his name's Albert. Yeah, you know what I mean. And yeah. it's no, no, this is what Prince Albert really means, and it's like, well, what? And like, still probably not understanding at the time how that is, but you know, again, pushing the envelope and the creativity flowing. That I think, you know, 
I, I, I'll rescind that comment earlier about the dead end that took draws from the LOD. You know, he was able to kind of do something else after that. Um, but ultimately, you know, he hit a ceiling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Lots yep. of ceilings we're seeing here. As great as that WWF Attitude Era was, it was you know, everyone played their role. You know, and I, and I, and I guess the ceiling's probably a, a derogatory term. It's his role was to be there, you yep. know, and it's up to him to make the best of it. Yeah. And I think he made a pretty good, sh- you know, go of it. Now, do you think the, now you, you mentioned, you know, the Merrill victory could have been, you know, um, their way of, you know, trying to make up for the, uh, the, the stuff going on with, with Sable and how Merrill's character was made to look pretty silly. Uh, in my opinion, I felt it was very silly, but do you think because at the time, the Jacqueline Sable issue was the only female female storyline, the only female versus female storyline on WWF television. She had just won the World Wrestling Federation Championship or Women's Championship, I should say. They were reintroducing uh, the, the the title to to the WWF. Do you think the Mero victory was done to not make Jacqueline's association look bad because she had just won the championship and she was in a high profile storyline with Sable, like? As a kid, you would think, at least for me at 15 years old, I would have thought to myself, you know, what's the women's champion hanging around with this fucking loser that loses all the time? You know what I mean? And they were putting a lot of emphasis on Sable and Jacqueline with Mero kind of being the third wheel in that storyline at times and months prior. Do you think this was done so that it would help make Jacqueline look more credible? And not hurt her championship run if she was associated with a losing Mark Marrow. Um, maybe, but I feel like I, I feel like again, I, I think the fear would have of a Marrow loss being associated with a new female could have brought him down the same path. Does it put Jacqueline over now as mm-hmm. a babyface or as someone that's what the hell's he doing with what the hell's she doing with this loser? Yeah, you know what I mean. When they're really trying to make Jacqueline the 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 foil. The, the dominating heel in the women's division against, you know, Sable. Um, I think, I, yeah, I, but at the same point, I think it was probably done, it could, there's a good chance it was, it could have been done to enhance Jacqueline, that, I, that she had a viable threat in her corner, mm-hmm. if you will, you know, as it related to her prospects as champion. Um, but ultimately, I think, there was, st- I feel like there was still more plans for Mark Romero and that they just needed to kind of right the ship a little bit. And, um, but at the same time, staying associated with Jacqueline, I feel like was not going to remedy that at all. Like, yeah. You know, they could have moved him away from that entirely and done something else. And I think done a better job than keep him with Jacqueline win or lose. No, but I'm just saying in general, like the, the, the not, not benefiting Merrill, benefiting Jacqueline. The, the the victory right I think it, I think the victory probably benefited her in the sense like I said that she now had a viable threat to or a viable uh, protector mm-hmm. of her of her championship yep. prospects okay um all right. a guy that loses all the time you know isn't gonna be helpful gonna, yeah it's dur- gonna be, during her matches right, yeah yeah I don't know if that would and and yeah that probably was a, in some ways done to protect what she was putting together yeah. Another match here, another thrown together match, but surprisingly, it was a. I enjoyed the match watching it back. Um, Bradshaw, 
Blackjack Bradshaw going one-on-one with the man they call Vader in a oh, Falls man. Count Anywhere match. As Jim Ross would say, and he didn't say it on this this show, but that is bowling shoe ugly. Slobber knocker. Slobber knocker personified when it comes to this match. Uh, Bradshaw at the time was... Um, was another guy that uh, was, I think, trying to find himself. He was tagging with Terry Funk, and at one point he had turned on Terry Funk, and he was just kind of in a, in, a, in a singles role. Um, I think he was like, I think they were doing the, the, the storyline where he couldn't get along with every anybody, but he was forced to tag with people, and he tagged with Vader once, and they didn't get along, and it turned into this. Seems and, like nobody likes Bradshaw. Yeah. <laughs> But um, seems like a nice guy. Yeah, I I met him once. Uh, wasn't very nice, but I met him once. Um, or actually, I shouldn't say wasn't very nice. He seemed very um, short and cold with me. Okay. Um, not 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 particularly thrilled to to meet a stra- uh, a stranger like myself. But anyhow, uh, with this match, this was a falls count anywhere match. No disqualifications. No countouts. Uh, no real build up for this match. Like I said, I think they tagged once and they didn't get along, and it, it came in, you know, came to this match. Um, the pre-match interview is pretty funny because you saw, you know, clean-cut Bradshaw uh, just shaved his, you know, beard and goatee, trimmed up his hair a little bit, still the jet black hair, standing next to Michael Cole, mm-hmm. and of course we know the who would have thought years yeah, later exactly, you know? yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> you know. It's, Probably the the frosted tips, Michael Cole. Actually, he didn't have frosted. He didn't tips. have them. No, though? he didn't have. No, he did the frosted tips. Uh, uh, it's sad that I know this, but he's <laughs> he he did the frosted tips. I believe, like a couple of years later, I want to say like he debuted the frosted tips at like uh, um, Royal Rumble two thousand or WrestleMania or something that year. You end up being right. I don't oh know how my much God. time you have on your hands, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know exactly. Well, I had a lot of time on my hands before I got married. So um, I will say, I think that like. You know, Bradshaw is, you know, inherently, or at least aesthetically compared to, or in many ways, is like a clone of Stan Hansen. And Vader and Stan Hansen is classic stuff. If you, if people haven't watched it, you know, there's... there's The places. famous match where Stan Hansen, uh, he, he popped Vader's eye out of his socket. Yeah, I think you've got a guy like Stan Hansen uh, to compare him to, where I feel like maybe that was someone that... Vader would have liked to have worked with. That's that's just his jam. That's yep. his style. Very physical. And yeah, let's just go out there and, and, and throw bows and, and, and mitts and just... See where it lands. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and again, going back to that veteran guard, veteran, you know, bring along the, 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 the young guy. Not that Bradshaw was fresh, but Bradshaw in, his iter- in that iteration was fresh. Yep. Let's try to get this motherfucker over. Let's get, let's, you know, let's get him, take a beating from the man they call Vader. Yep. The Mastodon, if you will. And I think that was another... Go out there and kid, and let's see what you got. It was definitely a physically hard hitting match, sloppy at times, um, but uh, the 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 victor in this match was Bradshaw with a hangman's neckbreaker. He delivered, excuse me, two or three clotheslines from hell. And at one point, I, I could be wrong. I might be overthinking this, but if you go back and watch it on WWE Network, I believe it was after the 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 second clothesline, the first or second clothesline. Um, I feel like it was supposed to be the finish of the match because he got up and he was pissed. <laughs> and then he, like, stood up and he was like, get up, you bastard, or something like that. And, like, you fat ass. Like, he said something. I forget exactly what it was. And um, Vader got up and then he, like, he delivered another clothesline. 
And then he picked him up and he gave him a hangman's neck breaker, which was like totally like uncharacteristic. Maybe Bradshaw was just trying something, see if it was going to work for right. his you know repertoire. You know, yeah, and, he probably and, didn't see much of that afterwards. Yeah, exactly. He 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 stuck with the clothesline, and that was the end of the that. Lariat. The yeah, the lariat, the clothesline from hell, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, the clothesline from hell is what it became. But yeah. yeah, and they were pre- and they were pretty stiff. Those clotheslines, I will say, going back and watching it, like you could hear like. Like I'm surprised, you know, Bradshaw didn't have any bruising on his arm, like because he hit a wall when it came to yeah. Vader. But Vader went down. Uh, but overall, it was a physically hard hitting match. Like I said, sloppy at times. Uh, they had it didn't go too far. Uh, they they went outside the ring, but they didn't really uh, implement the falls count anywhere strategy. Didn't see you know any plunder, baby, if you will, going on in the match. Uh, but Bradshaw won, and 1998 was not a good year for Vader. Well, in the yeah. WWF, yeah. and this was just another, you know, a, another case proven to me as a fan that you know, as much as I really wanted to see Vader succeed, it, it, it his time his time was his time was coming to an end. Well, I was gonna say I feel like the Vader experiment was long over at this point. Um, the bloom was off the rose, yeah, for sure. And I think the timing of where the company was going. He just wasn't in those plans. And I think, you know... He was there to help transition. Yeah, and I think he was a legit guy to help do that. And I think that they had, with Vader, a chance, I think, even if he wanted to stay longer, which I think is a good what-if to ponder, is that, I feel like, would have been his role. You know, Mm -hmm. Vader, I feel like, would have been a constant in what became the hardcore division. And I think Vader could have been a... That would have been pretty cool, Amazing, you know, linchpin to that division. Um, You know... Not necessarily with a Vader victory, but since we're trading places here, I think, uh, you know, if if there was a, a, a longer future for Vader, that's where I think he would have found a home, you know, if there was an extended run past 1998. Obviously, his run didn't go much further than, than that. So, yeah, I think that's kind of he, his role would have just been demolition derby every night. Now, the, that's you know, I never thought of that, but here's one thing I did think of as far as the path Vader could have taken. Something that I would have maybe just selfishly gotten behind from a, a fantasy booking standpoint, as much as I hate the fantasy book and we're not fantasy booking here. But a Vader victory, I feel like, could have turned into maybe a role for him in Vince McMahon's corporation as, like, yeah. a henchman of some kind. Like, I always felt like... You know, as good as the corporation was, you know, for Vince McMahon and the guys that were involved in that group, two guys to me who I felt like could have been really big, and this could be a debate for another another time, but um, two guys who I felt like could have been really big in the Attitude Era and could have been really big foils to guys like Austin and The Rock are Vader as, like, being the endorsed monster by Vince, even though Vince kind of endorsed Undertaker and Kane for this show, I feel like Vader still could have kind of had a role, you know, almost like what the Big Boss Man had, like when he debuted a month later. If they didn't sign the Big Boss Man, maybe Vader could have been that bodyguard, that Mastodon monster protector of, of Vince McMahon and, and his, great spot and him, his corporation. But another guy who I feel like could have done really well in a slot as, like, you know, Vince's endorsed, you know, muscle. Psycho Sid. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. Sid. You know, everyone talks about how you know his his softball, you know, uh, his softball career and the Arn Anderson scissor stabbing in '93, and but 
that dude was fucking money, man. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was sad when like he broke his leg in WCW, and that was the end of him because like as, as, he just like he just looked like he belonged in wrestling. He oh. wasn't the greatest, but like you looked at him and was like, yeah, holy cow, a, yeah, that guy's a force to be. Right yeah, with. exactly. I, I, you know, and to get back to Vader, I think. Yeah, not what to get off topic if, here. What if, you know, a post Vader run after this, if, you know, for the sake of trying anything, you know, in in the spirit of it this time, what about a babyface Vader, even almost a comedic Vader? Like, how, how do you think that? Like would a hacksaw be? Jim Duggan kind of comedy. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But yeah. you know, just. I mean, I mean he was do, on, they, he was were, a babyface in this run. I mean, they but. put they put. They put John Tenta in a mask and called him Golga, yeah. you know, of earthquake fame. You know, yep. something could, you know, the guy had talent. Oh, yeah, I mean? absolutely. So, like, that would have been interesting to see, you know, if, you know, again, the Attitude Era was a, was a hard left turn for everybody. Yep. You know what I mean? Stunning Steve Austin, the ringmaster, became Stone Cold Steve Austin. Rocky Maivia yeah, became everybody, The Rock. Yeah. Everybody just put on these new costumes, if you will. Yep, Vader. I feel like Vader. Wow. I, again, I'm sure a lot played into it, but I think that would have been an interesting concept if you had kind of given him a huge overhaul of some sort, in some sort of fashion. Like, wonder why you know how much time Vince Russo put devoted to planning the future of Vader, and why something like that didn't you know come across his brain. You know, you being For all you- the crazy silly things that he came up with. I feel like a silly, you know. Perry Saturn concussion concussed type goofy oh, God, dopey yeah. big guy Lenny of in my, of of in mice and men <laughs> type Vader could have been. I think it would have been highly entertaining. Yeah, okay. It would have had I, its place, you know. I I don't get me wrong, I'd probably be entertained by some of that stuff, but I kinda like your Vader in the hardcore division kind of idea. Yeah. Um I think that would kind of suit him a little bit better. Um as far as Bradshaw goes, now you know, we, we kind of talked about the path we could have seen Vader taken, or maybe we would have liked to have seen him take um, had he had been the victor. But Bradshaw here um, didn't do a whole lot until um, he just showed up one night. Actually, I believe it was the Sunday Night Heat before Survivor Series, two months later with Ron Simmons and the Jackal, uh, who you know we all know is Don Callis. And... Um, they got involved in a match and kind of like let their presence be known. But Bradshaw really wasn't doing a whole lot following this, um, you know, following this uh, this victory. Of course, later he would, you know, him and you know Ron Simmons, Farouk would be the acolytes and in, in the Ministry of Darkness, and then eventually be the acolyte protection agency. And we kind of really got to see Bradshaw's real personality come out, or one of his real personalities. But what if now we're not really trading places here, but we're kind of Maybe taking an alternate route with the current, you know, the, 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 the victor here in Bradshaw. But what if they, what if we saw a JBL in the Attitude Era, in the height of the Attitude Era in 1998? Wall Street stock market tycoon, the, 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 the J.R. Ewing of the World Wrestling Federation, John Bradshaw Layfield, following this. Uh, I think. I think that would have been really cool. We know how it worked out, you know, five, six years later. Um, I think I think what made the APA work, at least, and probably more so knowing this, understanding this now, is just the 
how it organically just came together. They seemed so real. Yep. Didn't, they didn't look like they were playing characters. And I know you, the cliche that's been said is, you know, all those guys, that was them turned up to yeah. 100. You yep. know, the volume turned up. Yeah. And I think you got an that. extension with, of your real personality. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, I'm not going to, you know, pontificate that that's what the best stuff is because at least in entertainment, you know, sometimes you got to, you got to go all method acting and you got to be something you're not and play it really well. Yeah. That works for some people, you know, in other instances, being who you are is what gets you over. Um, but there was a sense of just this organic, you know, like that's, that's that dude in real life type of appeal to the APA or those guys. Yep. Um, and I think that I, do you think Bradshaw and had to go through that to get to JBL? Is that what you're saying? Like, do you think like yeah, he, I think he so. had to go from one extreme to another in order to make that second the opposite work, right? But I, and I, but I also think too like JBL, like that's who he is too. Yeah, you know, he yeah, is no, a very very articulate, very intelligent, you know, intellectual person. Yep, um, you know, the guy appears on you know stock market television shows, Fox News, all over yeah. the place, and I know he's his wife is very astute in that category as well. Um, I think JBL. I think the confidence of going out there was finally what he caught on to with the APA. And I feel like going fast forward to JBL, like that confidence was there to try something now that was, again, a lot like him. Let's mm-hmm. just get it out there. I remember seeing JBL and going, because one week he was Bradshaw and the next week he was JBL. And I, yep. to me, I was like, huh? Yeah. It was like, that was a hard turn in itself. Yeah. Like, it's like the. Yeah, it's like the dude, you know, was in um what's the movie with um with uh with Ackroyd and, and, and Murphy? Trading places. Trading places, yeah. 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 You know, like the dude woke up one morning and he was he was a Wall Street tycoon after being, you know A homeless man. Yeah, just yeah, yeah that's what yeah. And so that, and so to me I, as I was, I was becoming a smarter fan, I was like, that's just stupid because I didn't know that's who JBL was in real life. Mm-hmm. But then I learned wow, this dude's written books, he, he speaks at this, and he does that, and it's like, wow, okay, that guy, again, an extension of who he is. Yeah, I'll um, let him balance my checkbook, absolutely. Abs- yeah, no <laughs> doubt. I think he, yeah. But yeah, I, I think he did need to go through that um, that APA, and I don't want to say phase, because honestly, as great as JBL was, in my mind, the APA is where he's going to be laid down in history as really? an all-time great. You uh, think so? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You don't think, so you don't think people will remember him for his JBL stuff to... to if you're going to put him in that all-time great category, like that's the, the like the the one moment. No, I, well, I don't want to say that they're not going to remember him as that, but I think his, I think he proved that he was a lot better than the world thought he was when he became in JBL. the APA. No, it with JBL. Oh, okay, all right. Like I got he you. was, we were conditioned to believe him to be this mid card guy forever, and now I'm supposed to treat this guy like this. It took a while for him to get oh. there, and he accomplished it. Me as a fan too. I, it, I'm not he, gonna lie. He accomplishment shows you how good he is. I think that just you know, I, I guess by virtue of that's where he hit it off first. The APA is you know that's to me who he is. Yeah, you know, and and it's cool because I know you know at these raw reunion shows, like he'll he'll come out as the APA. Yeah. Meanwhile, that prior Friday on SmackDown, he was up wearing the headset as JBL, yeah. and no one cared. Yep. No one tried to make sense of it because it was we loved Bradshaw. Bradshaw and the APA. So I think that's where he's gonna have the most endearing, um, you know, respect from fans is through his APA work for sure. Okay. Uh, 
and that's not to discredit his JBL work, because like I said, he, uh, you know, went well beyond, I think, most people's expectations coming from that to be, you know, up until recently, the longest reigning WWE champion in the history of SmackDown. Wow. Okay. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, not to get too far off course here, but the JBL character, like, like many of, you know, many wrestling fans in the beginning, I was like, how am I supposed to take him seriously? And he's going to wrestle Eddie Guerrero for the WWE Championship? Like, when all of a sudden did he deserve right. an opportunity right. at the title? Exactly. But I will say this. Throughout that run, there were certain periods of time over, throughout that championship run that where I was like, he grew on me. The first point was the match with Guerrero, the first one, when it was that big bloodbath at Judgment Day in 2004. Legendary. And like how like in such a short period of time... He had no affiliation with Eddie Guerrero on television. He was not the JBL character. And in like a four to six week time period in, a, in, a, in an era of wrestling where wrestling was so fast paced when it came to storylines and you had to get the results yesterday of, of the big payoff, they, and I hate to use this term because I've heard this before, they slow burned. <laughs> I, I know a few people that have used that term before, and I just it drives me nuts. They slow burn this turn, but no, they slow burn the storyline. And going into that Judgment Day match, I didn't order the pay per view, but I ended up getting the replay on tape from someone, and I watched the match. And the 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 video the video package was so well done with his history with Guerrero and the stuff with Eddie's mom and having the heart attack, and then they had that like that personal like vicious match obviously where they both bled buckets eddie bleeding more than jbl and that was the first moment where i was like okay i can kind of take him seriously i was like all right he's not just you know like th this it's it was like starting to grow on me yeah, and then yeah. it, like over time like other matches and other parts of his character and things that his character did had like really like grown on me to the point where like when he lost that belt uh, against john cena i was like as much as I liked it, I was like, I was kind of hoping he'd have this belt a little longer, you know? Right, like, I right. was really kind of digging him being the chicken shit champion, you know? Um, yeah, so that's just my take on JBL. And maybe that's why I feel like that character will be the body of work that goes down as, you know, the, you know, why that puts JBL in that greatest of, you know, one of the greats of all time category. But at the same time, you know, your, your, your take behind it and, how people thought of him as a mid-carder only, and he had to be Bradshaw before he got to JBL. I could see why you think that you know that the Bradshaw character and the APA is probably the best stuff that he's uh, that he's ever done. Uh, you know, any anything else to touch upon when it comes to? Uh, we we kind of talked about this one for a while. Bradshaw and Vader here from uh, from from breakdown. An another back like kind of in the same comparison as Owen and Edge. Another matchup where you you if you could get the best of each of those performers and put them in the ring would have been classic. Yeah, like just man, like it was this thrown together match on a pay per view. What this it, you could have. So you're saying like 1992, 1993 Vader versus like you know 2004 JBL could have been. Whew. Yeah could have been that could have been some real good shit okay in some in, in, in some I can, form i can get you know? behind that i can um, definitely get behind that again they, they they were they were their their paths crossed at the wrong time yeah yeah and i like 
and I don't say I don't want to say the wrong time, not the best time. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, our fifth match on the card, uh, <laughs> another theme here. Uh, not the uh, the 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 vet and the young up and comer, but you know another match that was just thrown together for no apparent reason. D'Lo Brown going one on one with Gangrel, and his history had told us it was D'Lo Brown who defeated Gangrel and giving him his first loss in the WWF at that time. I believe Gangrel was uh, on television for a couple of months. He had a little undefeated streak going. They weren't really embellishing it, but when D'Lo uh, came up with the victory. They had mentioned that that was the first loss um, of Gangrel during his time in the WWF. Uh, he hits him. He hits him with the lowdown for the victory, but not before Mark Henry came out and attacked Gangrel on the outside while the referee was distracted with D'Lo. Um, this match surprisingly really good. Going back and watching it, um, D'Lo Brown, an individual who uh, I talked about on our factions episode recently, I felt like. Um, he did good stuff, but like, I don't know, I was expecting more out of him, um, coming out of the nation. Like you, everyone knew the rock was the, the, the head and shoulders above all else. The star but even but like, at this time, Owen Hart was still Owen Hart. So, yep. and you know, and he was kind of the, he was kind of an important person to the co-captain, so to, to speak, of the, to the strength of the nation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, D'Lo Brown and Gangrel both just immensely talented. And I mean, D'Lo was over pretty well. Yep. You the know, champ the, of Europe, the head, the head bob, the chest protector, the, yeah, the chest protector, you know, all that stuff. He was athletic as all hell, and um, he's a big guy too for his just, size. Yeah, he. I don't want to say he was like you know. I've heard the expression that I kind of like, you know, of you know, as it comes. I don't want to say he was oozing of charisma, but Dilo Brown seemed like a guy at that era where. When he walked in the room, his dick had been there for 10 minutes already <laughs> because that's how much he exuded that confidence and that swagger. Um, I'm stealing that one, yeah, by the way. You know, that, like, <laughs> that, that I think that he just, he, he, I don't want to say looked the part, but he, he acted like a star. Yeah. You know, as badly as he was, you know, was, wanted to be one and probably was never going to get there, you know, he played the role of a guy who thought he was cool and just, you know, I don't see he was smooth, but he was D'Lo Brown. You know what I mean? Like, again, he was, he was, he, he presented himself like a star. Do you know what I think helped that? And it's just kind of popped in my head, helped that persona of him, you know, pretending or trying to come across like he's a star was the DX impersonation with the road dog. Absolutely. Not too many people will remember the head bobble before, DX impersonated the nation, but when it was all said and done, and Road Dog was stealing the show that night when they did that 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 infamous you know impersonation, D'Lo Brown's head bobble, I feel like post the impersonation was was more prevalent than it was prior yeah, to it. Yeah, and you know what? I hope there wasn't any like reservations or question or hesitation to strip himself of that because yeah. he was poked fun at. Yep, he owned it. Yeah, this is. That was his. You know, he was yeah. D'Lo. Nobody could do that. Yeah, like, yeah. like imagine what could have been done if he said, "You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna scrap that silly thing." Road Dog trashed it, and the fans ate it up. He probably or somebody close to him said, "Oh man, keep it going. You're yep. D'Lo Brown. You know what I mean? That's that's who you are. That's your character." Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, uh, I, I like I said, I think a lot could have been done with D'Lo Brown, but. Um, I mean, he got the victory here, and I think that was done as a way to 
again, further cement the nation for the eventual breakup, including Mark Henry. He needed to be credible on his own, so this was his yeah. way of trying to build him up. Right, but I think I think there was potential for the seeds to be planted, like in the Owen Edge scenario, mm-hmm. for a nation, you know, brood clash, and you could have done that on a on a on a lower level of the card minus the rock okay. you know you could have done d'lo and mark henry versus you know and owen versus the brood yep which i'm sure probably was a match that took place in that time not to, you know on a raw or yeah. on you know the house shows you know it's just another the gang warfare mentality that they had at that time that was just another matchup to go with well you know? what about what about gangrel because uh gangrel was a uh you know coming in his character was very popular and it gained a lot of momentum um, for someone who had been there for such a short period of time. And he suffers his first pinfall loss on television in the WWF. And during that time, uh, they were alluding to some sort of an association with Edge. They didn't really uh, you know, go into great detail as to you know, how these two characters knew each other. But there was the, you know, the subtle uh, you know, instances where we saw Edge watching Gangrel's matches or Gangrel watching Edge's matches and in the crowd and kind of brooding, so to speak, to, you know, to use the term. Um, and I feel like, and we kind of discussed it in the Edge-Owen Hart you know, scenario, maybe a Gangrel victory with help from a Christian or even an Edge, maybe expediting the formation of the brood at the expense of D'Lo and Mark Henry, who was outside at ringside, would have been helpful on Gangrel's path moving forward. But, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, at the same time, once the three of them hooked up and became the brood, I think people, and myself included until doing this show now, forgot about how, you know, they really got together in the first place. You know, like it was, they, they were so cool, the appearance and coming up through the stage with the fire and everything else that like, I forgot that like, there wasn't really a whole lot of meat to chew on when it came to the formation of the three of them. It just, it happened and then they ran with it. You know what it would have been interesting too, and I and I know I'm kind of not furthering your your thought there, but no, go for um, it. in a different time, the Gangrel character is being primed to face the Undertaker. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, the Undertaker absolutely. was clearly in the meat of things, uh, you know, with his own stuff going on. But the Gangrel and the Brood—I want to call him the Gangrel. <laughs> um, you know, Gangrel and the Brood would have been would have you know Edge and Christian would have just been you know cannon fodder for the Undertaker, and Gangrel would have been you know as silly as it sounds. Gangrel and the Undertaker at WrestleMania could have happened, and no one and and it would have it would have made sense. Yeah, they could have gone somewhere with that. Okay. Gangrel was talented, you know. There was like terms, if you will, like 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 individuals or like elements between you know the the characters of the Undertaker and you know the Brood. Um, I think that would have been cool. I think Gangrel certainly fell short of expectations based on his talent. I think based on how he was introduced as a guy who could have could have done more. Oh, absolutely, for sure. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel like they looked at him as a guy looking back on it now and, you know, how highly people like Edge and Christian speak of him as he was, he was their wrestling daddy. You know, he was there to, to, to show them the ropes and, 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 and make them superstars. Um, 
he and he and he did that. So so do you think a, a, a Gangrel victory for him um, in this match would have would it have benefited him, or would would he have been on the same trajectory as he was without this victory? Um. No, I think he would have done better with a victory. Uh, but I feel like, you know, Maybe there was the shades else. of gray element that was obviously highlighting this era of wrestling where you, these were really two bad guy groups, you know, in theory, at least from a traditional yeah. standpoint. Uh, whose heat is worth taking away a little bit? Who can get it back more? Mm-hmm. And I feel like D'Lo Brown probably needed the victory because maybe he couldn't regain that heat, you know, as easy as, say, Gangrel could have. Um, Gangrel, I think, on the other hand, could have been established more. But again, he's beating D'Lo Brown. You know, and D'Lo Brown, for as the praises I sang to him minutes ago, was still just a guy in the nation. Yep. You know what I mean? He was a workhorse, but he, you know, Gangrel beating D'Lo Brown is not a big deal. Okay. But yeah. D'Lo beating Gangrel is. I just felt like at 15, you know, we kind of saw the seeds of the seeds planted that the nation wasn't going to last very long, um, especially after that SummerSlam a month prior. And Gangrel came in with such, such, there was a big push behind it. Like he was, I remember, you know, reading stuff on the internet as a kid that like, it was a big deal he was coming in because he had this unique look with the vampire, and he also owned the vampire character. I believe he was called the Vampire Warrior or something, and that's and I I want to say he owns the Gangrel, the trademark as well. He does, and I re- recall reading something recently where, you know, he's almost screwed himself in a sense because, you know, these all you see a lot of these legends they'll they'll collect a, a sizable royalty check from the video games, and the Gangrel character. He, they would have to pay him an exorbitant amount more money to to license the name the name that he owns, so that he could eventually get the big and paycheck. They didn't, yeah. Right. Well, he well he if he was anybody else, he would have gotten a paycheck. Yep. But because he had that attachment as Gangrel, and they would have had to use that intellectual property of his, mm-hmm. they would have had to pay him just to use it. And then you know they probably wouldn't have given him a, and, a sizable check. You think? Well. It would have cost too much just to put him in the game. Yep. That yeah, he would have gotten that check, but the money to put him in there would have been way too much. Mm-hmm. It's just that's just you know, you know, I, I took a, a brief class recently at, at Full Sail about intellectual property law. You know, they would have had to pay him, or a deal would have had to been struck to allow them to use that name on a one-time fee, where he would have gotten paid a fat check, which mm-hmm. they probably would would be a lot of money, or he would have had to begin royalties. Off of the units of the game sold, which would have added up. Yeah. And he'd be still getting paid. Maybe he'd be getting paid 12 bucks for, you know, SmackDown, know your role. But, <laughs> you know, in 2018, but, you know, it would have been a lot of money to shell out to put a guy in there that, again, they're not investing a whole lot in. It just wouldn't have made a lot of sense. And that's, again, he realizes you'll never see me really in that role or in a WWE game for that reason. You know, my my place in history is almost lost in that sense because, according to him, the amount of money they would have to shell out to make that happen would just be would just be too much. Yeah. 
next match on the card, uh, we could definitely we have a we have a lot to sink our teeth into with this one. Uh, so uh, you know, get ready. Triple threat steel cage match: Ken Shamrock versus Mankind versus The Rock. Going into this match, um, this really started the night after SummerSlam when Undertaker and Kane just kind of wreaked havoc on the roster, and uh, they had you know put a beating on Ken Shamrock. Kane and Mankind had some issues, and of course, Mankind and Undertaker had their own set of issues as well. And uh, then The Rock, who you know, coming off this star-studded performance with Triple H in that ladder match at, at the month you know month prior at SummerSlam, um, kind of taking a new you know taking a, a new a new attitude, a new approach, so to speak, as he goes to defend and stick up for D'Lo Brown, who's about to be attacked by Rock and. Uh, or by Kane and Undertaker, excuse me. Um, Shamrock eventually decides that, you know, he's more than just, you know, the Intercontinental Champion, and he'd like to be the WWF Champion. He kind of had his sights set on an opportunity at Austin. And uh, Mankind was just Mankind. He was still, you know, riding high off of that infamous leap off the Hell in the Cell at the, the, the King of the Ring pay-per-view in June earlier that year. So the three of them really wanting an opportunity at the WWF Championship. The Monday Night Raw prior to that, three of them have a triple threat match. Undertaker and Kane get involved. We have no clear-cut winner. And then on Sunday Night Heat, earlier in the evening, on the the, the kickoff show, so to speak, um, Mr. McMahon announces that the three of them are going to have their opportunity to compete for the WWF Championship in a triple threat match. And the winner will become the number one contender. And he's going to put it inside of a steel cage. And so we now are at bell time. And going back watching this match, I remember watching this match when I was 15 and watching it now. It was a lot of fun. And this was the match for me where The Rock became my guy. Like, this was it okay. for me. Right. The latter match a month prior, I had, I just remember watching it back, and I was a Triple H guy, so I was big on Triple H, and I was like, wow, like, Rock, you know, he impressed me. His, his performance impressed me. But, and as silly as this may sound, I will, go on, I, will, I will go on and admit this was the point where I felt like I jumped on the bandwagon of The Rock was the pop he got when he came out. When that music hit and that crowd in Hamilton, Ontario roared for him, JR was like, oh, wow, what a reaction. And, like, that to me, I was like, that was the moment where, like, not only he became my guy, but, like, it was confirmed in my head, like, that's a star. Like, he is huge. Like, not saying that he wasn't a star or talented before, but that was the moment for me right, right, right there right. where he, where I was like, that's my guy. The Rock is my guy. Like, right there. Like, and... His performance in that match with the double people's elbow and, you know, the, the 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 fact it was in the blue steel cage. I believe that was the last time they used the old blue steel cage in that match um, in, in WWF. Uh, history shows it that The Rock won um, as he had pinned Ken Shamrock at the same time that Mankind was exiting the cage. But the referee counted the pinfall as the official decision. The rules were pinfall submission or exit the cage, and Rock won before Mankind could exit the cage. I think it was like by like a split second. Um, now this is we, we got a lot to chew on here because there's three guys in this match. You know, this was also a period in time too where the audience was really getting behind the Rock, 
and they were distancing themselves from Shamrock. This was like the first of like hearing like Shamrock sucks, and this was the early stages of the Ken Shamrock, you know, turning bad, heel turn, whatever you want to call it. And of course, they lo- they loved mankind. So let's start off with, you know, Rock wins. Okay, and we all know what Rock did following this, and we can get into that in a little bit. But let's start with start with mankind. Let's say mankind got the opportunity to face the WWF champion from winning this match. Where does mankind go following this triple threat cage match at breakdown? I think mankind continues to win the hearts of fans. He had that underneath quality to him, that common man, you know, likable nature to him through all his demented, you know, characteristics that people kind of got a kick out of and and, and kind of, you know, attach themselves to. Um, I think you would have gotten to a point. And you you know what? Is he going to... He had already fought Steve Austin a few times this year. Yes, he was not mankind. He was dude love, but... And things drastically changed for him after that Hell in a Cell match. But I think you... Again, you... They weren't even keen on babyface, babyface matches then. Yeah. I think they... And I say that as... Hey, they know what they're doing. But um, I say that because they didn't feel that they could risk losing someone's luster. Whether... And they weren't going to mess with the golden goose of Steve Austin. Um, And I don't think they wanted to mess with Mankind. And I think a Mankind loss, especially in the way they did it... um, Further rallied support around the lovable loser. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I think you would have still gotten that support if he was now next in line. But I think they were probably afraid of what could damage him going up against, at least at the time of this match taking place, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Does, does, does mankind lose some of that love because he's, he's going up against Steve? He goes up against Austin. Is it? Does he lose? He's the number two babyface in the company at this point. Yeah. Um, do you risk? Do you risk it all? And if you do, what do those fortunes look like for mankind? I, I mean, I'll. I get where you're going with it, and I, I, I can sympathize with it with the with the idea of you know risking. Um, you know, the popularity of mankind and risking losing something with him as the number two babyface. But at the same time, I feel like, let's say mankind did win and he wrestled Steve Austin, who at the time was the champion before the show ended, for the title. You have a guy who three months removed was thrown off the top of the hell in the cell from The Undertaker, then thrown through the cell, and then slammed onto a bunch of thumbtacks. By the end of that match, the people found and gained a whole new respect for him to the point where, you know, regardless of still pairing him with Kane and Paul Bearer at that time, like, he was loved by the audience. And I think he was still... It was the Hell in a Cell 
you know, in, in at King of the Ring against Undertaker was still fresh in people's minds. I think a lot of people compared that Hell in the Cell going into this cage match as like, well, what's Foley going to do? What's Mankind going to do? And I feel like that aura behind that Hell in the Cell, Mankind was still riding off of that. And if Mankind losing to Steve Austin for the WWF Championship were to take place, um, I think I think individuals, I think fans and people individually would probably go back to, well, you know, he got thrown off the hell in the cell two months prior. Like he, you know, they didn't expect him to win, but you know, if they depicted the story in the way that you know, Austin gave him, you know, Foley gave Austin his best, but it just wasn't enough, and he's had his body go through a lot in the last several months. I think you don't risk losing Mankind as the number two babyface. I think, if anything, you help build him as a stronger babyface and cement his role in that number two spot because the people are now sympathizing that, yes, he's a tough son of a bitch and he went up against Stone Cold Steve Austin, but look what he's been through recently. Like, how can you expect him to win the title? From a guy like Steve Austin after what he's gone through in the last few okay. months. And, uh, okay, so I think that turns the question to the risk that it puts on cooling Steve Austin's jets. And as the golden goose that he was, I could see them saying, no, we can't. We just can't go there. Mankind has to be a little more equal to Steve. There's a lot of sympathetic elements that you presented there that can make Mankind be a still a baby face. Mm-hmm. But do you risk losing Steve Austin as that character that, or not losing him, because I don't think he falls off a cliff, but why ruin a good thing? And that's what I think they may be looking at with Mankind there. Why ruin a good thing? We have something going, especially with where they ended up going months down the road, you know, with Mankind's best stuff. But I think Mankind also had the talent to maybe flip it on its ear like he had done plenty of times beforehand and, and go back to being a bad guy, you know, in that Mankind role with the top babyface in the business. But I think he also needed to... I, I I think Hell in the Cell was still too fresh at that time for him to make that move. Well, I, mean, I, I feel, feel like, like... His promo skills could have really pivoted to the point where he could have been like, I fell off the cage, I fell through the cage. For you. My, for you. Yeah, you didn't you know, you, re- okay. you could have rehashed the Cactus Jack stuff in Mankind's you know. Vein. I retract my statement. No, you make I, a good point. I think point. you could. I, I just think all these things, I think, come to a risk. And I think that's... Those are things that I don't feel like they wanted, that they would want to entertain, at the risk of, of of losing something. Because I would I would I would suggest you say that this was the point for you that the that that you the Rock was your guy, in or around this time. And I would say you know maybe in the company's eyes, you know the Rock dropping the title at SummerSlam the month prior. I think in and around the summer of '98, they knew. We're going Steve and The Rock at WrestleMania. Oh, I, I don't so, doubt that. With I don't that doubt being that at said, all. We have to now lay a, a a story in place that keeps and maintains Austin's star power while we build The Rock. It's amazing that they were able to do that, given how much focus was given to mankind coming out of the Survivor Series a couple months later. Mm-hmm. So. I think the plans were just so set at that time, which is an amazing thing to think about now, that they looked at Mankind, and, and I think he it didn't hurt him to lose. 
Um, no. And again, the guy who caught the win was the guy who would become the WWF champion two months later and, and really write a great story for the beginning of what would be two of the greatest rivalries in history, his with Austin and with Mankind. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, we, we, we touched on Mankind, the path his character could have taken. Two-thirds, you know, this triple threat match is Ken Shamrock, uh, an individual who came in a year prior with a lot of steam with, you know, the, the ultimate fighting championship, UFC and MMA, kind of uh, really uh, adding to his presentation, the world's most dangerous man. And I felt like at 15 years old that because of that aura and that persona that he was portrayed as and, you know, uh being this, you know, shoot fighter in the WWF Attitude Era, why the fuck didn't he go after the title earlier? You know what I yeah. mean? Why didn't he wrestle for the championship earlier? He was so damn... He, he was... Believable. Yeah, believable. Like, I believed as a kid, as a teenager, that, like, Ken Shamrock could beat the shit out of Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson was the baddest dude on the planet for yeah, a long... You no, know, I agree with you. I remember when Tyson came in, and I was like... Is- I know who Mike Tyson was, you know. Everyone knew who Mike Tyson was, arguably the most famous person on the planet, much less the baddest one. But uh, I was right in that boat with you. No, Ken Ken Shamrock, to me, you know, as as much as it was pontificated that Tyson was the baddest man on the planet, well, we've got the world's most dangerous man here in the World Wrestling Federation. You know, that would have been a cool matchup. But I know we're we're, we're going backwards here. I think Ken Shamrock's uh, fortunes, Kind of like Vader's, where he was to me the a very traditional, you know. I know you know in the mold of what Jim Ross looks for in a quality star in the business, full of athleticism and toughness and legitimacy that harkens back to a Jack Briscoe or a Dory Funk, you know those types of guys. Uh, I think that he was just in the wrong era of wrestling. He made the most of his career, though. Let's make that clear. Um, I think he was just in an era of wrestling that was just passing him by for, no pun intended, the oddity of what the Attitude Era was. You know, people were just looking for something different. Ken Shermock would have been great, I think, given the players that he was that were on that team, so to speak. You could have done more with him, but again, let's put him... I don't know. Actually, you know, it's hard for me to justify this because... I think he was he was he he was one of the unsung guys on that squad, and uh, I think if he had won the match, it would have been a signal that there's more to Ken Shermack than we're replacing him right now. Yeah, and I think not that this loss signified the opposite, but it was just the era he was in. You know what I mean? He was almost a caricature of being like that, you know, roid rage guy at this point. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's one that I wish that they could have gone further with, and I think a victory would have at least set the table for more. Shamrock and Steve Austin, I think, could have been a big fight at a pay per view. Oh yeah, and then they put it on Raw. Yeah, and like, it's, yeah, and it's not like it's. Not, I don't think. I mean, granted, Raw was a big deal back in the day. You know, like you, if you got a big match on Raw, like a yeah. championship match, it was a huge deal. You know, it's not yeah, like you it's, know and nowadays. I don't think, but, and I, you know, we talked about the, the mankind matchup with Steve Austin. I don't think a Ken Shamrock matchup on a high profile pay per view. And high-profile program is going to hurt Steve Austin. No, no, no. You know what I mean? In fact, it's going to endear him more to people for getting his ass kicked and being that never-say-die character. Yeah. You know, that 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 outlaw, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just would have worked well. And I, you oh, know, it's yeah. It's a shame that it didn't. And I think, again, like I said, a victory, I think, could have 
set something up later. I kind of, I, I will say this, like I felt like um, the amount of times he had lost to The Rock as the Intercon- in, in the Intercontinental title picture earlier in the year and the stuff he had going on with Owen and, of course, they blew it off in that Lions Den match the month prior at SummerSlam. I felt like after that, like there was something, he just needed something. You yeah. know, to kind of stay relevant again because I felt like he was just kind of treading water, so to speak, at 15 years old. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, we talk about how much more they could have done with him. Yeah, they put him in the corporation, but you know what he became in the corporation? He just became someone to feed to Steve Austin. Yeah. And feed to mankind. Yeah. And I thought he was better than that. You know, that would be like putting – I don't even know why I'm going to say this right now. But that would that would be like, you know – Putting Brock Lesnar in in Evolution, you know what I mean, or so you know what I mean. Putting Brock Lesnar in a faction against where he where he's just being fed. Yep. And you know, instead of being the focal point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm not. I mean, Brock Lesnar doesn't have the 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 eloquent ability to talk fans into the seats, nor did Ken Shamrock. But mm-hmm. um, it, it seems like they didn't value those intangibles that Ken Shamrock had as much as they would later on or even beforehand. Yeah. No, and that, mean, I think, speaks to yeah. the mindset they had in the Attitude Era. You know what's interesting about this match, too? Rock wins, okay? It was a great match. Clearly, the audience was behind the Rock. They were, cha- you know, they, they popped for Foley. You know, he had a, a big spot in the match where he'd done a, a, the Jimmy Snooker elbow off the top of the cage, and he missed. To death. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And uh, the, uh, whatchamacallit, I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, the Rock wins the match, but then he never gets the title shot. He never got the one-on-one opportunity, and we'll kind of delve yeah, into yeah, that yeah. later as we discuss the main event. But I just found it, I, it, it dawned on me when I was watching the match. I was like, he never got that one-on-one opportunity, but we'll we'll get into that later. Here's an interesting match, a match that had some pretty decent buildup going in, and I believe it was advertised. Um, like I said, this pay-per-view going into it had like three matches advertised before the night of the pay-per-view, and then they just added all these matches on at like last minute. But this one definitely wasn't one of those. Uh, Val Venus defeating Dustin Runnels. Uh, this was at the period of time where the Dustin Runnels character he was he was kind of flirting that 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 religious kind of vibe. With the "He is coming" signs, and you know a lot of the um, references of uh, you know scriptures in the Bible, um, and of course Val Venus was the complete opposite. You know Val Venus was the hello ladies. What if what, if, uh, what if "He is coming" was dusty? <clears throat> I know that wasn't a thing that they like. This kind of went nowhere. Yeah. What if they already told the world that they were that was he was the son of the son of the plumber, That's right. the original son yep. of the son, yeah, the plumber. Um, that would have been cool. I mean, I don't think that was in the cards. Uh, what if What if he helped, whoever he was, help Dustin defeat Val? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I feel like I feel like as smarter fans now, we would have probably been hung up on the internet wondering and going back. And he never like, showed up in WWE creative. They stink. Well, yeah. If there's, yeah, we would have yeah. probably said, you know, <laughs> you know, been met with a lot of that. But I, I, you know, I think, you know, even between you and me, you know, as much as we talk about things that happen in current mm-hmm. events, you know, and we kind of hang ourselves up on the certain, you know, dialogue that gets put on a show, wondering if that leads to more. I feel like we would have probably been like, who's he? Yeah. When is he coming? Who yep. is he? And obviously we would have been very disappointed. But, you know, I that's just us. I think that's our nature just to kind of like we're smart to what we've been introduced to. And I think that's where that kind of comes from. It's funny because when just you know thinking about this match and this rivalry when i was watching it you know, 
earlier this week in preparation for this show. Um, as a kid, I didn't really, I don't, re- I don't remember really getting fixated on like who he was. I, for some reason in my head, and I don't know why, sometimes this happens to me when I watch wrestling, and I kind of brought it up with the, 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 the too much Al Snow Scorpio match, but when I looked at Dustin Reynolds and, you know, talking about he is coming and talking about, you know, wrestlers in the WWF and their, their lack of morals, and he was kind of targeting a lot of the risky um characters like Val Venus and then eventually the Godfather um, and and the edgier characters that didn't appeal to the younger audience for some reason as at 15 years old I thought that there was a chance that Dustin Reynolds would have like been a part of Vince McMahon's you know corporation of some kind you know because he was kind of the he was kind of preaching the same way that Vince was in the early days of when Austin had the title about what a champion should be. Dustin was preaching about morals and what, you know, other human beings should be and how they should, you know, conduct themselves um, and not guys like Val Venus who commits complete, you know, you know, adultery with his wife or ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife Terry Runnels who was once Marlena. I mean, for some reason in my head at 15 years old, I was like, I could see Dustin being a part of the corporation or being with Vince McMahon because at the time there wasn't a corporation, but. Um, you know, it, 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 it does sound pretty silly after I just finished my statement there. Well, no, uh, I don't think so, because he was somewhat of a mercenary in a lot of respects. He kind of transitioned to a lot of these roles of sympathetic figure to, you know, eclectic character that kind of didn't really care for other people and their thoughts on him, you know, and, you know, kind of playing on the daddy issues thing and acting out, if you will. You know, like, yeah, that would have... I think that could have made sense. Him, He wouldn't have been a formidable person. He would have just kind of added to the makeup of, like, you know, whatever I have to do to gain acceptance. Yeah. You know, not that he would have tried to make Vince his dad or anything like that, which could have <laughs> yeah, could have been something. But, you know, I, I, I think that could have been something that – great hand, great wrestler. Yeah. One of the greats. Yep. Um, someone that could have been fed to Austin – you know, for sure, fed to mankind. Um, just a steady hand that could have been in the group to kind of be that bump machine. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's weird because as, as many, as much as fans did get hung up on the he is coming, in hindsight being 2020, looking back on it, obviously um, it didn't seem to, that they had like a serious plan. Win or, win or lose with Dustin Reynolds, it didn't seem like they had a real concrete plan as to what they were doing with this whole, you know, you know, Dustin Reynolds, he is coming kind of storyline, which they eventually, you know, he was Gold Dust, and yeah. you know, he became Gold Dust again. Yeah. And I think everything he, everything that he he was trying to shy away from at the beginning of this, you know, transformation with trying to shed, you know, get rid of the Gold Dust persona from him, he eventually went back to it yeah. um, with uh, no explanation, really. Yeah, it seemed like the, the direction was so haphazard and just so like spontaneous that I think the only constant, I think, in the rationale of time putting those two together, like you said, was the was the morality at play between, like you said, the clean-cut, uh, holier-than-thou person versus the, the porn star. You know yeah. what I mean? The philanderer, if you will. Um, but 
underneath that, at least from I think from a backstage perspective, again, veteran, even at this point, old Goldust was a veteran now in the business, and Val Venus, a fresh face. Let's get this guy over, and that guy could work too. Yeah, you know what I mean. Pe- you know, people seem to forget that. You know, for everything that Val Venus will be remembered for, you know, the guy could work, and I think um, that was another scenario where it's all right, Dustin, go make this guy. You know, give him, give him, I don't know how long that match went, probably no more than like six minutes. Yeah, it wasn't give, very give long. Give him match. six good minutes and and, and, sh- and let's see what the kid can do because we got plans for Val Venus. Now, here's, here's, here's an interesting uh, scenario here. What if he, that helped Dustin win and defeat Val Venus, would become the right to censor? Yeah, that's very cool. That would fit. I think that would fit like a glove. A Dustin Reynolds right to censor kind of storyline i think that would fit well i think that would fit very well um yeah and you could take someone like him and plug in plug him in with three or four different guys that aren't really doing a whole lot on the roster would have been very uh uh consistent with the thought process they were having with a lot of those groups at the yep. time um what if he that came was valvinus I'm trying to... Boing! <laughs> Was that your attempt at a really bad joke? I mean... <laughs> it's the Attitude Era, man. I mean, they, so what, they, Dustin... they shot the guy's dick off on TV. That's true. You know what I mean? That's if they, you know, true, if, yeah. they, if they could simulate an ejaculation, which they have, brought yes, to you by Super Soaker 20 yeah. million thousand. <laughs> if they could... They, they, don't put it right. past them to, si- to simulate an ejaculation That's by another that performer is true. in the middle of the ring. That is true. They've it would have done... been the worst payoff ever, but it would have been, it would have fallen in the same chapter with with the acclaim of such things like Katie Vick that I think people would never forget for all the best reasons. But what about... Sweet Jesus! You got a penis. Yeah. That's why they call me Sammy, baby. Yeah. That's my my favorite Mark Henry moment of all time. Look, look, to be fair, to be fair, there's no money to be made by having Val Venus be the one who came. Um, (laughs) I mean, despite the money shot. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's just a goofy, would have fit the time. I don't even know how you would do that, you know. Or what? Or, no, I don't know. I about, just think that's too funny to to, to, to let yeah. hang. Yeah, especially during that era. Yeah, I'm sure that's one of those ideas that definitely oh, made, come made on. it, you know, made like it across the table. Yeah. Well, bro, bro, what if the guy who came <laughs> was the porn star? <laughs> that you know is like when the moment that like Jim Cornette got up and left the room. God damn! You're gonna let this motherfucker <laughs> run this business into the ground? My goodness! What the meeting like for real like yeah that's the- oh man we know that conversation didn't happen because we would have heard about it for sure oh Cornette would have told that sure. story somebody that would have that would have escaped that room Cornette would have told that story just the oh, same way God. that 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 people discuss um disco infernos short run on the uh, wcw booking committee when he came up with the idea of the evil architect bill ding which yeah. I don't even I, I I don't even know if that's true or not, but you know we'll we'll discuss that for a later date. Um, we didn't really touch upon uh, Terry Reynolds, who uh, a few weeks prior appeared in uh, you know one of Val's uh, critically acclaimed films to reveal her herself as his co-star. Um, 
you know, eventually we saw, you know, Gold Dust return about a month later, and um, the androgynous, provocative Gold Dust, uh, you know, really fitting into the Attitude Era. But what if they had expedited that process further? And then we've been using that term a lot on this week's show here, expediting that process. Um, if Terry had, you know, pulled the wool over Val's eyes, and we saw the the we saw he. Gold Dust return sooner at, yeah, at, at breakdown with help cool. from Terry. Yeah, you know, I would have dug that. I mean, maybe I'm nine years old. I mean, yeah, you dug a lot at nine years old when it came to <laughs> you know WWF and wrestling. I mean, yeah, I don't think, I, yeah, I'm not, I wasn't hard to please. No, no, for no, sure, no. absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I would have been sitting there, you know, jumping on the internet and and complaining about it like you know many of us do now. So yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah, I mean. Well, you know, that, that's that when it comes to Val, Venus, and Dustin Runnels. Well, actually, you know what? Before we get off that subject, I just want to get your take on Val, Venus as a character, Sean Morley as a performer as a whole. I felt like another guy could have done more. Hell yeah. He's in that Al Snow category. Hell yeah. And he even did some good stuff post-Val, Venus when he was Eric Bischoff's chief of staff as Chief Morley and... You know, even in the right to censor, the stuff he did there. Um, what? Why didn't Why didn't Val Venus go on to bigger and better things? As much as they like to push the envelope, I don't think that Val Venus showing up on the Tonight Show with the WWF Championship with his uh, towel, yeah, promoting the next thing to happen in in the WWE universe that didn't exist at the time. I don't think he was just a, his character would have been a, that's just, there's some things that are just are in the cards for some people. And yeah. Val Venus, you know, being the flag bearer of any sort for the WWF was certainly in that, uh, in those limitations and those boundaries was certainly something that I don't think as much as they wanted to push things was going to happen. Okay. I, that would be the, the, again, the guy could work the guy and his, it played a great character, but you know, it just, it, that just wasn't in the cards for sure. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I can, you know, I can, I, I can rest easy. With, uh, with hold on answer. though. We got, before, I got to say something, one more obnoxious thing. Yeah. You know, you got to think too, man. Like what if they took Val Venus and like, I know he was a adult film star, you know, mm-hmm. in that, in, in, in that, in that time. But like you talk about guys like Elias, you know, un, uh, you know, debuting albums and things like that. If what, debut what if he debuted a movie? <laughs> you know, there well, wasn't a WWE a few... network. What if he debuted like a, a longer form film that was done in such a way that didn't obviously, you know, taint the, the uh, youth of America? But at WrestleMania, he, he, you know, they tease this sort of thing that leads to something. I don't know. Like, in the same way that they, at WrestleMania 8, they teased that Flair and Mr. Perfect yeah, were going like, to put Miss Elizabeth's yeah, naked body on the yeah, video like, screen. You know, the, all the... the, the someone the comes out and kind of stops yeah, it. Yeah, the tongue-in-cheek and nature, the and they could have just built something up, you know, yeah. not gobbledygooker-esque, but yeah. he is coming yep. in some sense. Yeah. Like, you know, the big Valboski debuts his feature film. Shaving you know? Ryan's privates yeah, or something, whatever. something, <laughs> you know, that, that they could have had as a drawing card for a WrestleMania where he comes out to, and again, like it gets squashed by something, but, yeah. oh man, that would have, that would have been right up the alley of the attitude arrow. Like, and they could have, I mean, they, come on, they, they took, they took a, a gay wedding pretty damn far. 
Oh, yes, yes. They <laughs> you know what I mean? Did. Years later, who's to say that they didn't toss around that idea of, we're going we're gonna to debut Val Venus's, you know, award-winning adult film feature debut. <laughs> and, and you know, and that, and that's that's and that's eight minutes, ten, eight to ten minutes of a segment at a WrestleMania. Bro, I used to have lunch with Martin Scorsese. We can have him sit in the front row, <laughs> and we can have him cut a promo about his time working with Val on this new movie right before <laughs> it debuts. And then, when the big reveal is going to take place, all of a sudden. Kai and Tai shows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have another been entertaining com- as hell. Another conversation. I'm you know, sure. And I think had. that would have been that would have caught some buzz. Maybe not the right type of buzz, but man, they weren't they weren't uh they weren't the cleanest. These are questions ways. we should and, ask Vince Russo. Yeah, like, well, honestly, like on, that would have been. What great. is the most outlandish thing you ever booked that we uh, don't know about? Please, know. by all Come means, on. like he's got to have like a whole bag full of tricks yeah. that you know. Definitely. I mean, hey, in the WWE Network, if there was, <laughs> I mean, there, it could be stashed away yeah. for parental controls. I mean, man, they could have. Yeah, you'd have to like, have, yeah, they could put like a, a, a tiered pay system. You'd have to pay extra to get this, you know, oh, to, to get that that show. That would have been great. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, they already called Jenna Jameson for a, for a bit. She did do a little bit there. Yeah. Yes, she did. That's right. Oh, I remember man. she she was in one of Val's little uh, early uh, early vignettes. You know what was cool about Val that you know, I'm sure that you probably remember was <laughs> was the Titantron video with like the the um. The hot dogs being put in the bun and like the sunflower like yeah. rising to the occasion and yeah. like the water and shooting what, out of the fountain, you know. Nine years old, I didn't know what the fuck any of that meant. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like yeah. now it's like, damn, it's funny you mentioned that because I saw something that creeped its way back on the social media and it was a feature in a WWF magazine and it was an interview it was like a Q&A with Val Venus yep and it was just and I'll have to find it so we can maybe post it on the Facebook page it was just a uh, Q&A filled with just sexual innuendo and double entendre oh wow, i that believe could it never never see the light of day on television oh today forget about it yeah. oh man it was amazing i wish i, I I'll, I'll have to dig it up and post it but it was uh, that's hilarious it was uh wow yeah, wow! I remember going, "Holy crap!" In 2018, man, the big Valboski would not fly. That's for sure. Yeah, well, uh, you know, something that did fly was an advertised six-man tag team match with Degeneration X, X-Pac, and the New Age Outlaws as they defeated Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice. Southern Justice consisting of Mark Canterbury and Dennis Knight, who were once known as Henry and Phineas of the Godwins fame. Um. This was post the Jeff Jarrett haircut, which, by the way, I found out on the, on the most recent edition of uh, the Bruce Pritchard show that uh, he came up with the hair idea because his wife was, uh, you know, suffering from about a cancer and she yeah. had to, you know, her she was losing her hair, so he was cutting his to kind of, you know, show his support. Show his yeah, support. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I mean, that was that's pretty that's pretty cool and uh, very uh, touching. To hear, unfortunately, she had you know passed a, a number of years later, but uh, nothing to write home about with this six-man tag team match. I will say that I, going back and doing my research and watching this show, uh, it was earlier in the evening that um, Billy Gunn was involved in a singles match on Sunday Night Heat. He was forced to wrestle uh, the Oddities. 
um, on Sunday Night Heat in like a handicap match. Or it was Kai and Ty won. No, it was the Oddities. Yeah, it was the Oddities. Um, Kai and Ty had lost to the Hardy Boys that night, and that was like the debut of like the Hardys as like main roster stars. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they were really uh, planting the seeds for what they could do with Billy Gunn in the singles role by having him kind of go, you know, work two matches in the same night, and they were in a sense trying to build the story of, you know, two-thirds of that team is 100%. The, you know, the third guy, he's not, and Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice have the advantage. But uh, for me, I, I didn't mind the Jeff Jarrett Southern Justice uh, group, even with, uh, um, uh, what's his name, uh, fucking um, uh, the manager, Colonel. Uh, Robert Parker. Yeah, who was known as Tennessee, Tennessee Lee. Tennessee. Oh, my. Oh, I'm Tennessee Lee. And I got. Oh, J E double F. Selling a used car somewhere right now. <laughs> actually, no, he's on. Uh, he's actually performing as Colonel Robert Parker. And he has comprised the stud stable again in uh, MLW, uh, Major League Wrestling. Yeah, oh, that, well, no, I didn't mean that like in a knock, like in real life. Oh, okay. Like, that were... character it, is, is someone, you know. If, you know, from Eastbound and Down fame, you know, Ashley, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Will Ferrell's Ric Flair impersonator. Uh, uh, the Chevy dealership. Yeah. Um, I forget. Yeah, I yeah, know you're talking he, about. Yeah, yeah, he did his best Ric Flair impersonation. Uh, that's something that Colonel Robert Parker, that would be like a great little thing to add to his character. Yeah. Like how he sells, you know, used cars. Yep. Or, you know, you talk about like the... Um, you know the colognes, the latest, you know, you know, iteration of the cologne tag teams. You know, selling fake vacations to Time Puerto shares. Rico. Timeshares <laughs> to Puerto Rico. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, Tennessee Lee selling used cars and yeah. lemons. You yeah. know, to people that would have been that would have been highly entertaining. This a car over here. Yeah, I got it all the way. Yeah, literally, like pull, bring a car out, and auction it off at a show. Yeah. You know, and then the fan gets in the car and it doesn't start. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> This Ford F three fifty is hemi powered, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, nothing really to write home about this match. And uh, I mean, DX was red hot, so like I didn't really expect um, DX to to lose this match at fifteen. And you know, going back watching this, uh, I could see why. Uh, like I said, red hot. Triple H, I believe, was hurt at the time, so that's why he wasn't a part of this match. He was originally scheduled to be a part of this match, but. Um, not too long before this, I think they they slotted X Pac into the role. Um, yeah, I mean Jeff Jarrett, Southern Justice, would it have benefited if they won? Slightly, but I mean Jarrett was kind of the 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 edgy, you know, attitude that he you know not to be cliche in the Attitude Era, but you know the edgy attitude that he had um, obtained pre haircut, post haircut. Really set him on a path to for people to take him more seriously, um, which I think helped him. Um, I think the addition of you know Southern Justice was kind of cool to his presentation, but at the same time um, wasn't necessarily needed. I mean, I, I didn't expect major things from Jeff Jarrett if he had won the if him and his team had won this match. Is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I would have to agree out of the lack of my recollection of it, honestly. I mean, just wasn't fresh, wasn't an interesting idea. Um, It was actually probably less so in comparison to everything that was happening on TV. You know, like I said, you go back to Ken Shamrock, you go back to Vader. They were 
remnants of at least in the in their presentation of what we understood wrestling to be yep. you know as far as characters and you know their positions uh in a different time and place that's something that 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 uh probably you know jumps off you know the page a little bit better but yeah, yeah it just it, it i mean it wasn't i mean kind of like when they did the nwa invasion earlier in the year it just wasn't designed to be interesting more than it was designed to say like that's that wrestling that we don't do here yep. in the wwf it gave two guys something to do and put them in a decent spot like right. you know canterbury and dennis knight and you know Please don't, it's henry and phineas it will always be yeah henry, henry and phineas, phineas. yeah I, I believe this was before if i'm not mistaken tennessee lee was gone by then or maybe he was gone after this canterbury and knight just kind of, i think uh Henry Godman got hurt. Phineas was kind of floundering. I, I believe he was still accompanying Jarrett to, you know, ringside for some matches on like live events and maybe even on TV. But this was not too long before uh, we saw Jeff Jarrett and Deborah in the WWF. This was you know about a month shy of Jeff Jarrett yeah. and Deborah. Um, I mean, there was no real formal way that they introduced her. They just kind of brought her out on TV with Jarrett, and everyone knew that they. Were associated with each other right, from I WCW. Feel like yeah, I feel like so they didn't they, need much explanation. They didn't need a, they didn't need a backstory, but I feel like, um, in some ways, not to trade places here with this scenario and with this match, but I feel like maybe the downfall of Southern Justice and Jeff Jarrett and Tennessee Lee could have been attributed to Jarrett being distracted from his time spent with Deborah, and then that's how they reveal Deborah is that she's the one that's kind of you know hitching her wagon to Jarrett and his star and in yeah, hopes or, that you know he becomes you know bigger than he he is under her guidance or the other way around you know he's got this you know the success that he had in WCW you know he was looking to recapture that yep. because of the star power that Deborah had mm-hmm. kind of looking ahead like yeah ah, I don't you know I don't need these guys I'm, I'm gonna go get something new you know and Deborah became a huge star so I think that yeah, I mean, it was instantly familiar, like you said, their association, not even just their association. People knew who Deborah was. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep. So all that helped him for sure. I think that it, it probably helped him more than it helped her. Oh, absolutely. I, I I would totally agree. All right, here we are, main event, the match that you know everyone was ordering the pay per view for. Stone Cold Steve Austin defending the World Wrestling Federation Championship in a triple threat match against both Kane and The Undertaker. A month prior, Austin and Undertaker wrestled in the main event at that year's SummerSlam with Austin coming out the victor. And right around that same time, it was revealed that Kane and The Undertaker were forming an alliance, the Brothers of Destruction, the 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 birth of the Brothers of Destruction, so to speak. They, so to speak, excuse me, they had had um, a longstanding rivalry for better part of a year and now they were going to be in alliance and with the ongoing struggle between mr mcmahon and stone cold steve austin and with the wwe wwf championship at that time as like the 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 pawn mr mcmahon kind of saw an opportunity to find the most complete way of a, a foolproof plan They'll make sure that Stone Cold Steve Austin does not leave breakdown with the WWF Championship by putting him in this triple threat match. Now, here was what was interesting about the, the stipulations for this match. Number one, Undertaker 
or Kane could not pin one another to win the championship. Yeah, they they both could pin Steve Austin. And Austin obviously could pin one or the other to keep his championship. Um, I loved, and I don't know if you remember this, but I loved in the video package, Vince tried to rationalize with Austin that, well, you have more than one option to keep your championship, whereas Undertaker or Kane have to pin each other. Like, Vince tried to rationalize it in this, like, asshole, dickhead kind of way that, like, you know, Steve, you have more of an, you have a greater chance of keeping the title because now you have not just one, but two options to to, to win the match by beating Kane or the Undertaker. Yeah, 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 Vince guy, he's got a few ideas. Yeah, that was, I I thought that was kind of interesting. And then Vince, um, had laid down the edict that any one of Austin's friends, which at the time, obviously, his character didn't really have any, but anyone that interferes on behalf of Steve Austin will not only be fired on the spot, but that Stone Cold Steve Austin would be stripped of the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Um, this match really was a glorified handicap match. And, it, and the interesting part of this piece of history here is that we got a double pin finish. Undertaker and Kane double choke slammed Austin, and they both pinned him and both hooked each leg. And we didn't have a clear cut WWF champion at the end of that pay per view. If anything, Vince was the fucking champion. He walked out with the belt. He flipped the bird to Austin. He got in the limo. They rolled credits, and that was the end of it. Um, here's some more meat to chew on when it comes to this scenario because there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of variables with these three guys and with even some other outside factors like. The Rock, who had just won the W, the the triple threat match earlier in the evening. So let's kind of start with uh, let's go with Kane. Where what's Kane's path if he were to have won the World Wrestling Federation Championship in this triple threat match? Well, I think in any scenario where Austin doesn't leave as the champion, as we saw, yeah, it's setting the table for him to chase the title. Whoever is the champion. Yep. and, 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 and de facto chase Vince. Uh, Kane as the champion. I think... I, I, I don't think that does it for anybody. Um, that's I mean, it, I think... I think that's... I think, honestly, what we're pondering now is probably, if they didn't think about it then, it's probably the reason why they settled on the finish they did. But, again, we're trading places here, so... Kane is the WWF champion. I mean, I think that gets you a rematch, right? I mean, we've seen that on pay per view, though. So you got the next night on Raw, yeah. Yeah, so they did that earlier, right? So you gotta. There's not much to chew on with this one. uh, It was such a device to get them to where I think they were going, Mm -hmm. but I think Kane winning could have. I mean, he would Kane and The Rock. That really wasn't something that had been touched on yet. Nope. Um, they teased I, it a little bit. Yeah. They and teased I, it a little bit. Um, but I don't think Kane's character was one that was going to be able to carry much of any load by himself as the champion. Vince McMahon at his side is thinks what would accentuate him a little bit. Um, it would have probably been something short term. Um it changes a lot. Yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah. Does he, does he make it all the way to WrestleMania with the title? No, you know what no, I mean? no, I don't think so. 
but let's let's just kind of like does he go does this i mean does he go against the undertaker you didn't beat me yeah you know what i mean that's yep. a, that's a pretty basic story yeah um and then you can kind of go or you know do they do they go with the angle of you know kind of slow burning that you know and and the undertaker you know I support you as the champion you also got to remember I mean? you also got to remember too that I kind of forgot to mention here is that they were in an alliance so th- to the best of my recollection when the question was posed who's leaving with the WWF championship between the two of you because you both have made it clear that you're working as a unit Undertaker responds back in a, in a pre-match interview with Kane and I have come to an understanding. What exactly was that understanding? Right, 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 right. So if Kane wins the WWF championship, was that the result of that supposed understanding? Sure, or is right, right. it something that went against the understanding? Right. Now, yeah, that understanding could be that, you know, the Undertaker, you know, kind of, you know, explaining, all right, man, I, you know, I, we did this together. We're the champions. Yeah. Well, you know, and I know that's been done in a more lighthearted manner in, yep. in, in later years, but does it be okay now that you have the title, you owe me one? You know, and do you tell a different story with The Undertaker and Kane with the title now? They've fought each other so much. Mm-hmm. Or, and do the, or do they slow burn it? Again, they're in a, so they have an alliance at this point. Do they move along and just say, you know what, The Undertaker supports his brother Kane in this role as the champion? Yeah. And they, they carry that to an eventual turn of some point that leads to a head-on collision at a at a grander stage and i think you could flip it and say the exact same thing for undertaker yeah you know like no kane like i'm the champion now where does vince play into this because vince is the one that orchestrates it so vince was the one that set the match up and vince was the one to me looking back on it even even back then who's what horse is Vince back? Yeah, I think his horse or the, his, that he's riding on is. I don't care who you who is the champion. Austin's not. Yeah, and you guys are this dominating force that are going to make sure Austin never sees the light of day. As and the I'll WWE figure it champion. out later. You know I mean, I don't care. And do, do they then set their sights on Vince afterwards? Possibly. Yeah. Um. But then again, and does he try to maintain and curate that alliance as long as he can until it just gets to a boiling point where it's it breaks off. Yep. You know, I think that's a logical direction to go in. Um, but again, I feel like such stuff was, was so concrete at this point. Um, I think that's probably the area you would have gone with the either two of them. Yeah. You know, one of them's the champion. They try to maintain this alliance where they help each other out. And, you know, with the sights on a future matchup down the road, that ends up being more hostile than it was designed to be breaking that alliance. Here's an intangible that really wasn't, um, brought into the, the storyline, but something that definitely could make some sense was Paul Bearer. Paul Bearer was Kane's manager uh, heading into SummerSlam, and when that alliance with Undertaker and Kane was you know revealed, they both dumped Paul, ba- Paul Bearer. Does Paul Bearer have a role yeah. in an Undertaker or Kane WWF Championship victory over Steve Austin in in that making that victory happen. Yeah, is is he have a role in general in any of these in either I of those two that. scenarios? I can see that. I can see him 
maybe he's you know he's the linchpin to make one of them win the match. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe he's the guy who kind of tries to main you know at the at the request of Mr. McMahon. He, it's it's his job to maintain the dominance yep. over that title and 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 the the blockade if you will against you you know Vince is the Austin. Vince is Vince is the boss. He's and pulling the strings. He's and pulling the strings. He's and... enlisted in Paul Bear who knows those yeah. brothers as well as anybody. Paul, Mr. Bear, whatever. It's you know. It's it's incumbent on you, or you know, or, or it's your ass to make sure that that these that these that they can get along. And this and so this so this scenario with Paul Bear trying to, you know, control the the herd, so to speak, of Undertaker and Kane. This is coming. This is coming off the heels of Undertaker and Kane turning on him a month prior, because that's what happened. Undertaker and Kane dumped him, yeah. and kept this aligned. So is this one of those scenarios where? Vince pulling the strings, but he needs someone to keep the two of them in check. And so either Paul Bearer's job is threatened or his physical well-being is yeah, threatened. Yeah, yeah. So therefore he's got he's to gotta work with these two, even though they just yeah. and I think you know, you put the, it, tried to put him out the right, pasture. And you have those three characters kind of in that dynamic of, you know, the, it, you can bounce him between the two as far as playing favorites. Mm-hmm. Or you can, again, continue to maintain that 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 force until he can no longer contain it whether mm-hmm. he, or he maintains it long enough to decide you know what i'm gonna i think the undertaker might make a better champion if kane's the champion and and try to get the belt on him off of kane mm-hmm. or the or, or vice versa or whatever you know who is he you know he's gonna find the star as as the heel that he is he's gonna find the easy way out to 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 gain the prestige and, of course, in the industry, the money behind managing the world champion. Yep. So you could have gone that way, I feel like, with those two. Um, so close to everything they had done before, I don't know how fresh it would have been, though. It would have been an interesting dynamic. I think it could have worked in the Attitude Era. Like you said, they just turned on him. It wouldn't have made a lot of sense, but a lot of things didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, Val Venus, we thought, lost his dick and yeah, came back a week like, later. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Some things just didn't make sense, and I think it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been interesting. But it, but then again, where does Austin play into that? Is he chasing well, that that's or is another he going thing after too. That's another thing, too. Like, does Austin... Does Austin chase either guy as the champion, or is Austin more concerned about trying to get his hands on Vince? Which and, is and 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 does someone else come into the plate? Like, let's say, for instance, The Rock. Okay, he wins the he wins the triple threat and becomes the number one contender. Granted, his popularity is growing, and of course, we would you know come to find out in you know two months' time he was the corporate champion and he was the guy that. You know, Vince McMahon had envisioned as his champion all along. Here we go again. Same term, same phrase. Are we expediting that process faster of Rock and Vince as an as an alliance? You know what you could have, I and mean, you could you could have very roundabout again. If Austin's trying to get back to that title picture, and he's you know trying to you know crumble that alliance of Kane and Undertaker to get to the title. Rock's a babyface at this point. Does The Rock then join up with Steve Austin? That's a house show main event going. That could main event anywhere in the country. Yep. Rock and Austin against the Bronze of Destruction. Undertaker and Kane, yeah. Um, and there could be interesting scenarios there where it's a tag team match for the WWF Championship. You yeah, know, they've done it before. Um, and then you're you're playing at a lot of things. The Rock wants to be the champion. Steve wants to be the champion. Undertaker and Kane could they could start sowing those 
seeds of dissent between those guys. You know, there could have been that aspect that you could have gone. That could have been a Survivor Series main event. It would have played into what's the nature of what Survivor Series is. Yeah, with you know screw jobs and things of that nature. You know, yeah, tag I mean, team warfare and yeah. things of that nature. I could get behind like a ju- like a like let's say like let's say they went in the direction of. Let's say they went in the direction. Now, this may sound silly, but then again, this is Attitude Era, and we've kind of discussed some of the silliness that we think could have been discussed during the Attitude Era. But what if, you know, they went with the same finish with Undertaker and Kane pinning Austin and Vince leaving with the title, and then the next night he's going to announce who the the, the, the undisputed World Wrestling Federation champion is. As a matter of fact, they brought the wing, winged eagle belt back for they, that, yeah, that I, ceremony. Yeah, uh, also the tease. Yeah, and uh, sorry, I didn't uh, mean to steal your thunder there, but um, what if Vince had decided during that ceremony, let's say that the Zamboni didn't come into play, and let's say Austin didn't crash the party, even though was, as, that's probably my favorite Austin vehicular moment in wrestling history, um, just by JR's call you know, alone. Uh, what if Vince had decided for the first time in, in history that two individuals are so deserving of being the champion that he gives it to both? That he shares the that they share the championship. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting. And like I said, you it, know? Could have, it could have And then you about... could set up that match with Undertaker and Kane against Rock and Austin at Judgment Day. Or if you wanted to wait and burn it up burn it off at Survivor Series, you know, like yeah, and then the, and then maybe and then maybe that's when you reveal that The Rock was the corporate champion all along that Vince wanted, and Rock screws Austin to win the title, and then Vince and The Rock end up screwing Undertaker and Kane, and they were just pawns. Yeah, I think they wanted more. Um, I think they wanted more behind getting Austin and Rock together than maybe just hot shotting it. Yeah, with six weeks of build mm-hmm. you know there was more story to be told with it you know going from november to march yep than say september to november yeah um but yeah that would have been cool like if they had a tag match and then you know maybe uh the rock is the victor and he becomes the champion and then you know austin goes to shake his hand but what do you think happens boom stunner and then that's that sets the ball rolling in the rock size like screw this guy. Yep. You know, and then he becomes the corporate champion, yeah. but Austin's going to get his match and that's where he unveils himself as the corporate champion. Yeah. And you could play this you could do you could do the screw job off of Rock and Austin. You could. Yep. You and, could. And 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 full blown they could babyface babyface it at that point and then maybe go with the back to the Rock the same way they ended at Survivor Series, but having Austin be rightfully screwed out of the title could have been interesting yeah so you're saying like rock austin survivors rock austin survivor series for the championship screw job same way that they did rock foley you could have done yeah you could have yeah well yeah exactly yeah like say say they they have the the match in the next month the tag match where the title's on the line or something like you said the dual champion and and then the winner's the winning team will face off one-on-one at the Survivor Series, mm-hmm. you know, to determine the sole surviving WWF champion, there you know, you go. just to throw a term out there, you know, and I know it sounds like we're booking it right now, but um, again, you could still get to the same place. Stone Cold and The Rock win. You can kind of do the babyface encounter and then and really build on these two rising stars, these two stars of the company, and really play to that babyface idea and make the fans pick, and then 
sharpshooter, call for the bell. Austin screwed out of the belt, and The Rock's the corporate champion, and, and we continue. Okay. All right. Overall, your thoughts on the breakdown event and the likelihood. What's the most likely trading places scenario from WWF in your house breakdown 1998? Uh... The most likely. I can't say The Rock. I think, like I said, they were going with The Rock in his, in his run. The Steve Austin one is pretty much writes itself because that's all working together. And again, Mankind Not Winning kind of continues mm-hmm. his his story. Um. You go first. How about that? You go first. Okay. I, I don't. I, I gotta ponder. You gotta, that you gotta ponder that yeah, one. Yeah, All yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the most likely trading places scenario I could see. I could have seen WWF Vince Russo, bro, the creative minds go with in 1998 after that breakdown event. Now I might need to think about it. Honestly, one of the one of the two, uh, either Kane or Undertaker, from the main event. Okay. Um, I could honestly see the way that they the the outlandish things they did at that time during the Attitude Era. With you know, like you said, they threw things on the wall and 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 they either stuck or they didn't. But I could see in 1998. That scenario where Vince McMahon decides that Undertaker and Kane are going to share the World Wrestling yeah, Federation there's no Jack championship. Tony around to squash that. Yeah, so. and 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 I. But at the same time, your your scenario for either Kane winning or Undertaker winning are two situations that I could definitely see being very ideal. Yeah. For the way that they mapped things okay. out at that time in 1980 yeah, that's think, just for me personally yeah, i think i think if i had to pick one I'll, I'll pick i'll pick edge over owen um again the guy was destined for greatness very early on you know you could tell right away just his look and everything he brought to the table bell to bell um i don't think it hurt i don't think an owen loss owen Hart loss would have hurt owen you know at the you know at the risk and I, with any risk that's any serious risk that is while still trying to at least, you know, further along Edge's rise, his eventual rise, that is. I don't think it would have hurt. It would have been a cool moment, too, for a relative unknown to pull off a victory like that against the great Owen Hart. I think it would have made it for a cool one, two, three kid-esque moment. Very, very cool stuff. As we wrap things up this week here on Kicking Out at Two with the second installment of our Trading Places series covering WWF Breakdown in Your House 1998. All the what-if scenarios, I think we put them all out on the table. I think we mapped out the landscape of the Attitude Era in a very entertaining fashion. Hopefully something you guys can get behind. And hopefully we didn't come across like fantasy bookers because you know me and you know what I like to do here on Kicking Out at Two, and that's not fantasy books. So uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the show this week. And thank you all so much for tuning in, checking us out. But before we go, allow me to give you guys a little preview of what we got coming up in the month of October. We got a lot of cool shows coming up, and I want you guys all to be a part of it over at SoundCloud.com each and every Wednesday. So without further ado, let me give you the schedule. October the 3rd, next week, 
We're going to take a road trip, if you will, a figurative road trip, and we're going to go to some of the biggest cities in wrestling history, the cities that created some of the most magical moments in professional wrestling history. I'm talking about New York City, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Dallas, Houston, Texas, the Carolinas, Philadelphia. I mean, you name it. We're going to cover some of the hotbeds in professional wrestling history, cover some of the greatest matches and moments, and why these cities are so important to professional wrestling. So stay tuned next week for that. The following week, October the 10th, we're going to give you our top 10 moments in SmackDown history. That's right, a top 10 list. With the upcoming 1,000th episode of SmackDown on the horizon, we felt that we should cover some of the historical moments that take place in SmackDown history, whether they were matches, uh, promos, you name it. Top 10 list, SmackDown, October the 10th. Stay tuned for that. The following week, Dennis J. Levy is going to join us. And you know Dennis from our Guilty Pleasures episode, uh, the Fall Brawl 1993 watch along last week, the Tag Team Mount Rushmore the week before. He's going to come and fly solo with me. And he's going to give me a little history lesson on what it was like growing up being a fan of the original gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I I found his story to be so fascinating uh, that the first dose of professional wrestling as a kid that he watched was with his sisters and it was gorgeous ladies of wrestling so he's going to give me his thoughts his recollections if you will on his time as a women's wrestling fan and the original gorgeous ladies of wrestling the following week this is a heartfelt one this is a sentimental one uh justin's going to join me but our other two siblings zach and daryl are going to join me for the third installment of our My Favorite series, and uh, we're going to do a watch-along on the WWE Network as a part of one of my favorite shows I've ever attended, and that was the October 23rd, 2000 edition of Monday Night Raw from the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. It was the night after No Mercy, the night that uh, Stone Cold returned to wrestle Rikishi, the night that Kurt Angle won his first WWF championship. This is the Raw following that. A lot of implications set the table for this edition of Monday Night raw and it was why it's so sentimental to me is because this was the very first uh wrestling event that all four of us boys got to go to together my father got us tickets for the four of us Uh, i'd been to a few uh years prior daryl had been to a couple but uh justin and zach this was their first wrestling show they ever went to and it was the first time all four of us went to a live wrestling event and you know it's one of my favorite events not only because of how good the show was and how much fun i had but because i got to spend it with you know my three best friends in the whole world my brothers so uh my favorites monday night raw october the 23rd 2000 with team rosenbluth in the house on kicking out at two and then we end the month of october on halloween wednesday october the 31st we're gonna do another watch along on the wwe network and we're gonna watch an edition of halloween wcw's halloween havoc i don't know which one yet because i'm still trying to figure out which one i want to watch if if you guys have any ideas what you want to watch with me on the wwe network hit me up on facebook slide my dms on twitter let me know what you want to watch Halloween Havoc, WWE Network, with me and the Kicking Out at Two crew. And that really about does it for the month of October. Um, So, you know, check us out each and every week over at SoundCloud.com in the month of October for all those great shows. I will have a schedule posted on both the Facebook and Twitter uh, Kicking Out at Two accounts. You can head on over there and hit the like button if you haven't already. Facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Be a part of the interactive fun and discussions we got planned. You'll see that schedule later this week. Uh, give us a follow on Twitter if you want to take a look at what we got over there. Our handle is at kicking out 
K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. Pictures, videos, debates, discussions. The following's not as strong, so I need your help. Let's build up that following over on Twitter and make it just as strong as what we got going on over at Facebook. And uh, I think that about does it this week. I, I'm all out. I'm tapped out. I got nothing left for you guys. I appreciate you guys hanging with me and joining me. Uh, but before we get going, before I put this show down for the three count, I want to leave you guys with a little soundbite, if you will, to close out this week's show. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier in, in the Trading Places discussion with Justin that it was this moment, this show, that I that solidified my fandom for The Rock solidified The Rock as my guy, and it was the the reaction that the crowd in Hamilton, Ontario gave him. So without further ado, I leave you with The Rock's entrance from WWF Breakdown in Your House 1998. Thank you all so much. See you next week.